Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. So no, you're never ever to 
We first and foremost would like to welcome Brother Haki. We will bring him in and say, Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamafi Mashoki, <clears throat> Colonel with African Awareness. And, of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. Uh, one of the things, Brother Africa, I think is extremely important is that two members in the African community tend to decouple the history of the nation with the issues that are, permit, are so important to the African community. And so in the process of decoupling, we fail to understand or grasp the seriousness of the situation that we find ourselves confronted with. But having said that, Brother Africa, that's something I wrote real quickly. I just want you to, to check this out. Now, the notion the U.S. is a d- democracy has long been discredited, but political policy in the U.S. impact on African people receives very little discourse. Necessity to have this discussion is vital because the philosophical thread that holds the U.S. together is based upon the debasement, if not eradication, of the proverbial dead weight, namely the unemployed, the homeless, or the infirm. Life for life's sake is a concept that does not resonate with the ruling class. Life, according to many capitalists, underscored by a system of wealth accumulation, places little value on those perceived as unproductive or lazy. Under this backdrop, it is imperative we partake a cursory look into the institutions of power and their penchant to inflict harm, deadly harm on those perceived as holding by Congress, uh, progress. The very foundation of America has always been the empowerment of wealth. As such, established institutions' objectives were created to serve that end. Labor was one means to acquire wealth, but the mandate to acquire more wealth meant executing plans outside the continental U.S. to ensure more wealth. The pursuit of wealth was complicated by a political system that proclaimed itself democratic. This conflict was reconciled by the elevation of men and sometimes women in the political arena unencumbered by consciousness. Such individuals would innovate institutions that statistically ignore injustices in pursuit of wealth at all costs. One such individual was Alan Dulles. Dulles, the first director of the CIA, lacked compassion in the moral center. Prior to the establishment of the CIA as an OSS, or Office of Strategic Services Director in Switzerland, he formed many relationships with leading Nazis in Germany. Dulles, in the mirror of Nazism, because of his strength and efficiency, sought to emulate the spirit of Nazism by carrying out black bag operations in Latin America by financing troops in Latin America and assassinating leaders who sought control over their own resources. Dulles' actions set a precedent for governmental actors working outside of the U.S. law, in effect setting foreign policy for the U.S. Even though Nazi ideology figured prominently in Dulles' motivations, his relationship with large business, business firms signified, in his mind, the economic advantages of running U.S. foreign policy and the lucrative financial gains to be had. By the time the CIA was established, the tradition of coups and foreign leader assassinations were accepted by political leaders. President Roosevelt, who was aware of Dulles' illegalities, turned a blind eye, giving credibility to his schemes. Roosevelt, confronted with an economy in need of vitalization, recognized the necessity of revenues, and the enrichment of corporations by any means, whatever means, meant potential for increased revenues for the U.S. The norms Dulles created did not end with the CIA. Secrecy creation of the deep state were incorporated in various intelligence agencies and the Pentagon. Such is their power, these organizations control budgets that government cannot let alone account for. In case of the Pentagon, the budget is classified. Not only classified, but if Pentagon officials believe they are experiencing a shortfall in budget, they are free to take funds from other bureaucratic agencies. Ironically, the Pentagon has an overseas contingency budget, but these funds are not used to plug budget deficits. The dimension and power of the deep state actors is formidable. Now, the, the networks, these networks of power exist in a way that intimidate elected leaders. 
former President of Barack Obama, when asked by constituents why he did not pursue campaign promises, he, was, he responded, they would kill me. The proverbial day can best be explained by Glenn, Glenn Wall's report alleging in 1919, President Trump signed an authorization to end the war in Afghanistan. This order was undermined by then Secretary of Defense Mike Esper, a lobbyist for large weapons contractor Raytheon. To ensure Trump got the message, U.S. Central Command Leader Marine General McKenzie and Commander of NATO's mission to Afghanistan, General Miller, along with the military chain of command, warned Trump against further attempts to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. According to CNN, the warning was applied was was amplified by threats citing withdrawing troops from Afghanistan will result in legal actions by private contractors. <clears throat> now, this begs the question: Whatever happened to the U.S. government sovereignty immunity from being sued? Now, the relevance of African immunity is probable. It's very, very clear. If the focus of the deep state is to ensure the stability of the capitalist class while ensuring access to wealth for the rich, how does African immunity fit in this equation? Currently, under the auspices of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, two Democrats, both are pursuing policies justifying the CIA spying on U.S. citizens. President Truman had long believed the CIA's role is simply to gather intelligence abroad. Currently, both the FBI the Department of Homeland Security found U.S. citizens. By incorporating the CIA to spy, on, spy as well, counterinsurgency strategies will surely take a front seat. Counterinsurgency defined as comprehensive civilian and military strategies to prevent groups advocating for political change surely will be directed at Africans. The question, of course, is why Africans? Well, given the level of oppression, makes it difficult for most Africans to remain silent. African movements highlighting systematic abuse, disempowerment, and death lays bare the true nature of capitalism. This message must be squashed at all costs, even if that means mass determined expressed under the National Defense Authorization Act. Potential for abuse is too great. But those who think this is hyperbole, think about this. In 1958, the CIA attempted a coup, possible assassination of French President Charles de Gaulle. France and the ally of the U.S. came under attack from the U.S. If the CIA can contemplate a coup against friendly states, what compassion likely will be extended to Africans if people brutalized and mistreated for over 400 years? Much of the maltreatment of Africans is state-supported. Government policy does, does nothing to address systematic oppression of Africans, despite playing by the rules of the game uh, in terms of going to college, being law-abiding, and patriotic. The social economic statistics indicates there are two Americas. Two, two Americas can only mean one thing. One group is American, the other is not. Perhaps the CIA presence inside the U.S. validates this point. No amount of Patriotism in the African community would change this reality. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. We next would like to welcome Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Brother Thank Africa. You, Brother and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism. From the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968, I called Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the authenticity of my faith, that Mao's tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And after we don't reverse correct verdicts, I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Thank you again for allowing me to be on the show. 
Thank you, Brother Moses. Father Brother Moses, we now go bring in Brother Maurice. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Maurice. Greetings, brothers. Thank you uh, for having me here again tonight on African on the Move. My name is Brother Maurice. I'm a uh, proud Pan-Africanist, proud and Krumus, um, organizer, working for the people. Thank you for having me here again tonight, Brother African. And following Brother Maurice, we are bringing our Sister Shirley, and we'd like to welcome her to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Sister Shirley. Thank you, Brother Lee. My name is uh, Shirley Pate, and I have been working on Haiti issues and Cuba issues for 20 years. I'm a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution, and we're involved in a wide uh, variety of activities. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this evening, and I offer revolutionary greetings to all. All right. Thank you for being here today, Sister Shirley. And to our listening audience, you know how we do this. If you would like to have or share any views or comments, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. Here, one, we will acknowledge your last four numbers. But what we're going to do, we're going to our first segment, what's going on in your world and the community. But before we do this, we're going to take a quick pause for the calls. We're going to take a rubber shirt break, and when we come back, we're going to start out with Brother Hackey, and he's going to share with us what's going on in his world and the community when we come back. This is Africa on the Move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed 
We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Chains living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must to last through my journey, yeah, last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino is the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, 
more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. so-called riot in terms of, you know, stop the steal. Uh, there are those among us who believe that, in fact, that uh, what happened essentially was a mistake made by law enforcement officials in terms of not being able to guard the Capitol. But the reality is quite different. And recently a report was issued by the Inspector General, and I just want to share that real briefly with people and make sure we, we are all on the same page in terms of our fundamental understanding of what transpired on January 6th at the Capitol. Now, an Inspector General report on January 6th, uh, Capitol Hill riot concluded agency officials, the Capitol Hill Police, the Pentagon, Department of Homeland Security, ignore intelligence warnings despite Trump's rhetoric to agitate right-wing elements in the country. The report went on to say, despite the explicit threat officials ordered against deploying heavier crowd control equipment against rioters. These orders were ironic because three days before the riot, intelligence specifically mentioned Stop the Steal campaign promoted by Trump's congressional tank offense and the campaign's appeal to white supremacists, right-wing militia, and others as a credible threat 
Ironically, in assessing law enforcement preparedness the day before the riots, officials reported, quote, no specific known threats related to the joint session of Congress, end quote, uh, where Joe Biden would be certified president. This obvious deception by law enforcement strike me as conspiratorial on two levels. First, bureaucracy clearly established a line of demarcation specifying the duties and responsibilities for law enforcement officials. The fact no one affiliated with the breakdown of law and order has been identified or terminated is problematic. This suggests that individuals or individuals responsible for allowing riders easy access to the Capitol where, legis- where legislators assemble is someone associated with the deep state, deep state being unauthorized networks of power operating above the law, which has their own agenda. Secondly, allowing riders access to the Capitol Hill elevated their status. Denying status to those opposing the status quo is strategy utilized by states to minimize perceived threats. For instance, the incarceration and framework of leading African freedom fighters, for example, is a direct result of undermining their status in an attempt to criminalize or remove their status. African freedom fighters like Geronimo Jijiga Pratt, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Jamil al and hundreds of other revolutionaries, perseverance in the struggle elevated their status in the community, and as a result, were targeted by the state to silence them. So why elevate the status of so many right-wing zealots? Speculation suggests these same politically conditioned individuals will serve as useful assets in the future for augmenting and facilitating authoritarianism. This would be the perfect kind of people to engage in atrocities under the banner, Make America Great Again. Obviously, for the state, the game is chess, not checkers. So I hope that clears it up in terms of the, 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 the uh, law enforcement's uh, uh, awareness of the potential dangers uh, confronting the Capitol on that, on, that, on that federal date. So let's be very clear on that point. And so let's just, just disband this notion in the fact that it was somehow some mix-up among uh, government officials in terms of allowing uh, these, these riders access to the Capitol. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Next, we can go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? The mic is yours. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, I think the, you know, obviously, and the whole world is watching this trial, this uh, show, this, this killer uh, who is on trial, who, who hopefully will be found guilty. Uh, I don't, I'm amazed that. People can ignore all the evidence, but it's been done in the past, and uh, and so we we watch and uh, and uh, hope that uh, this thing will turn out with some form of justice. That that the big uh, thing that's been happening this week for uh, uh and I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we are going to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Maurice. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, I just want to um, uh, celebrate 41 years ago, Zimbabwe. Uh, they gained and fought for their independence from the British in 1980. Uh, second thing I want what that's going on in the world is we have a Another issue, another one, another, another uh, example, or another experience of black civil uh, or the, or the uh, oppressors using black uh, civilism to quell the masses. Um, the Virginia Military Institute has has chosen their first African American as the type, as the uh, article put it, first black superintendent. Um, 
uh, uh, Major General Cedric T. Wynn. Now, they put him in power because over the over the uh, last year or more, there's been a lot of, longer than that, over the last uh, couple of decades at, at the VMI or the Virginia Military Institute, has been a long list of, of racial uh, racial um, racial things that have been going on against Africans on campus. So now they put this black face in, in power as the first superintendent at the school, as you know, as we as we see over and over again to try to quell the masses. So that's one thing that's going on in, in my world. Another thing going on in my world uh, is in Cuba. Cuba has the highest rate of recovered COVID nineteen patients in America, in in, in the Americas. Um, with the highest rate of patients recovered from COVID-19 in America, 94.2% as of March 20th, according to the Ministry of Public Health. So, I mean, as again, in relation to Cuba also, Raul Castro is stepping down, and, um, you know, he, he's stepping down from uh, not only, you know, he stepped down for leadership, but he's stepping down for power. I believe at the age of 89 years old, the Castros, man. Um, <laughs> what other siblings you can name, man, who who did it like the Castros? But salute to Brother Raul Castro, and as he stated, he will continue to fight if he has to come out. If he has to come out of retirement to to fight for socialism in Cuba to keep socialism going in Cuba, he would do so. So I conclude. That's what that's what I got going on in my world, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Maurice, and we're going to ask Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley. What's going on in your world in the community? Sister Shirley, the mic is yours. Well, well I, I want to get real local here about our D.C. mayor and an email that she sent out to residents a couple of days ago. And the title of the email is, Need Help with the Rent? Need Help with the Utilities? We Got Your Back. And then she proceeds to tell us that she's got $350 million that she is going to use to, quote, unquote, pay people's rent, help them with their rent payments that they owe all the way back to April 2020. Also, part of the money is going to be used to pay rents in advance for people three months in advance. Now, anybody who steps one step back and looks at this realizes exactly what's going on. And that is that this is the answer that the landlords have been on their knees praying for ever since last year. So they are going to be getting whole cash benefits to cover them for a wide, a wide variety of rents. Now, inside this email, there's no information as to as to who will qualify for the program, um, when it marks it marks it, it might start, and in general, it was an obvious political ploy on the part of the mayor to uh, get the attention of the people of this city, but it's a hollow promise. We have many other problems in the city that we need that money for, and it was just disappointing 
to see this email. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. And next we'll go to ask Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? The mic is yours. Um, Good evening, everyone. Um, Thank you for allowing me to join you this evening. Uh, Brother Africa, Sister Shirley, and Robert, Brother Hakeem and Anthony, and uh, everyone, uh, blessed evening to you all. I have been, um, as you know, really concerned about the pandemic and um, seeing it as uh, we get to see real political lines being drawn. And once again, uh, the embargo is having an impact on world health. Cuba has been left on its own to develop uh, uh, a vaccine. But fortunately, Cuba has been engaged in um, developing such vaccines now for over 30 years, according to uh, Cuban sources. And so, therefore, they're ahead of the game in many ways. So I'm hoping that we can uh, unite to lift the embargo to work with our uh, Cuba in order to help squash this world pandemic and uh, that we all remember that we can't just save ourselves. We have to save everyone to save ourselves. And, of course, the trial of the uh, murderer uh, that we all get to see over and over on television is not only going on, but simultaneously there was a child recently shot in Chicago, there was another shooting in Minnesota, and people, African-American people and people of color continue to be gunned down by the police in the United States. So um, thank goodness uh, this week in the District of Columbia, uh, peaceful demonstrators took to the streets as they did in several cities across the United States. So all I can say is power to the people. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. There are so many things going on in my world community. I don't know how or where to get started. But I would like to engage all y'all on this phenomenon of these mass shootings in the United States. Uh, what y'all think is the basis or the conditions for it? And what does it say about a society, a system, where you have its citizens shoot each other on a mass level. Um, I just interested in terms of looking at this phenomenon. Um, how should we address this particular issue? Signing up with you, Brother Hackey, what do you, what, what do you make of these bad shootings that's going on inside the U.S.? Well, I, I think the, the mass shootings are indicative of the kind of system that, we're, that, we're, that we live under. Uh, one of the things we're very clear on, when we talk about capitalism in terms of all its manifestations, one of the things is very, very clear. The kind of individualism, the kind of lack of apathy, uh, the lack of concern, uh, um, lack of compassion, or lack of empathy for people is a, is a common theme in terms of capitalism. And so obviously when you that in conjunction with the kind of hopelessness people feel, and you certainly can understand why people resort to violence, because it's almost like soccer nature, for Africans, you know, to resort to violence, particularly when they're stressed out, 
Are they feeling hopeless? Do they feel like the situation is, is, is somehow um, uh, changed, is simply unattainable? So this is back there after we find ourselves confronted with in terms of the system. Now, how can we bring about change? Well, the problem, Brother Africa, without some systemic change, I mean real change, with institutional change, the bottom line, all we're doing is window dressing. And so in, so, so in order to bring about the kind of change we really need in terms of putting a stop to these killings, uh, we need uh, people to actually to articulate uh, their discontent with the way things are. But more importantly, we need people to actually organize specifically around these issues with the understanding that there can be no compromise. And in order to bring about the kind of just world that we seek, one without all the violence and all the injustice and, and all the needless suffering, then we have to fundamentally have a fundamental change in terms of where the system, the system operates. We need a new system, a system which is geared toward the, the advancement of, of humanity, human goals, those kind of things that tend to benefit humanity. So anything short of that, Brother Africa, I simply don't see in terms of any, any viable change in terms of bidding all this gun violence because I think it's an illness in terms of, you know, under capitalism, you know, uh, in the capitalist system. Brother Moses, what's your take on this mad, all these mass shootings that's taking place inside the U.S. borders? Well, this violence is as is, is American as apple pie. I mean, this is part of the American way of doing things. Uh, uh, and um, we need a revolution. We need a, a, a organization, uh, people who are dedicated to serving the people uh, who have compassion, empathy, and altruism. And uh, we, we somehow we have to get these people in, in positions of power. Uh, unfortunately, you know, most, most of the people who are conscious recognize that the system is corrupt and don't want to be overseers of the plantation. And so, you know, we have to somehow organize and have a, a mass uh, organization that is capable of, of, of ruling like uh, the party in Cuba and, uh, and and the Revolutionary Party, the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union, when there was the Soviet Union, and the CPC of China. Uh, we need a, a revolutionary organization that's capable of leading people in, against against these these capitalists and fascists and uh, people who are dedicated to serving the people. And that's the real issue. How do we get? How do we get that? that condition to come about. I mean, it's easier said than done, but obviously it's been done before and it can be done again. So we have to continue to raise people's consciousness about what's going on and make them understand that it's not just a few bad apples or something, but it's a whole political system that needs to be changed. And then we have to keep working for that day. I don't know any other way at this point. And so I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. We're going to go to uh, Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, would one be out of line if they said the real issue of this mass shooting must be viewed from the point of view of the system in which the people live and function? Is this an indictment against the capitalist system, Brother Maurice, from your perspective? Uh, yes, I mean, I mean, I want to say, yes, I want to say, I want to say an indictment. I want to say this is truth, you know. Brother Hakeem, Brother Moses can't say it better. Like when you, when you got a system, an economic system that goes to other countries and produce violence and murder and and genocide, 
it was built off genocide. Not only that, we're dealing with an economic system that was built off genocide, murder, murdering Native Americans for the for the land that we call America, right? Uh, mur- mur- uh, uh, kidnapping Africans and bringing us over here to build, use our labor to build it up. When you have that, that's the foundation of it. That's what, that's what we're going to get is these ongoing killings and, and murders. Now, the only thing that's going to that's going to end this, or or at least it, not even slow it down, slow it slow it down, but end this, um, honestly, um, or tremendously, would be. Uh, you know, a, a scientific socialist Africa. You know, I I, I can't say it no better. Um, organizing of Africans, because once, like Kwame Nkrumah stated, man, once you once Africa get organized and and become unified as under under a just economic system, a socialist system, that will open the doors up. That would influence, you know, uh, Russia to get back where it needed, where the Soviet Union, uh, where where it was. They need to get back to that. Or China to become more back to the principles of uh chairman Mao uh when when he was in power. You know, it would it would open the doors and and, and it would bore down to the West, crossing over and and, and being and bring it justice not only not, not only for uh just the one percent but all the masses of people, the workers. You know, we we, we like like Brother Moses said, we <laughs> we developed we created the wealth, you know. So yes, uh, I I want indictment, I I feel like they're indicting us. They're indicting the workers, they're indicting the low, the lump of proletariats, you know, um, but that's that's just they, that's just the real real conditions, the material conditions. Um, when you continue to go to other countries and, and, and give genocide, you're gonna have genocide in your own backyard. That's like for the I conclude by saying this: uh, uh, working in the um, working in working in the educational field, uh, a lot of students they they become bullies, and they say and, and and they stem they get it from they say they get it at home. They see their dad put their hands on their mom, right? I'm just using this for example. So if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm rounded at home, right, I'm rounded violence, and then I'm going out to <laughs> going to school with my friends, and I'm going to bring it in and, and be abusive to them, or put my hands on girls, or what have you. That's that's what that's the same thing as, as a, what what this uh this economic system does. Capitalism, man. It's, this is what what we're doing. We go over there to kill, and we come back home when we kill it. You know, it's, it's the same thing. You know, same same exact thing, man. I conclude. I conclude. Okay, and Sister Shirley, you know, many times we often afford the victim who have been victimized by the system. You know, Peter Tosh um, once made a statement that everybody talking about crime, but tell me who are the real criminals. What do you make of this mass shooting that's taking place inside the United States, Sister Shirley? Well, there's certainly nothing in the history of this country that would not have led us to this exact point. That, that's where all of it was was meant to be, is where we are now. Now, of course, the question is, and, and we've all talked about it, and I agree with what everybody else has said, and that is, um, how can we begin to impacted, uh, impact the situation? Obviously, it has to be a revolution of the mind and the spirit. Um, and it has to be uh, a universal, uh, done in a universal way. Um, and I just want to, maybe I just want to just not repeat what others have said, but I agree with everybody. A revolution is needed. It is needed uh, quickly. And if we don't 
this is going to be a horror beyond horrors we've ever even begun to think about. I get a, a thought from Sister Eleanor. Your take on this phenomenon, Sister Eleanor, your thoughts. Well, well I, I agree with I everyone agree else. With everyone Basically, else. we need to have a cultural uh, revolution. As Since the 1990s, warfare has changed. We've been able to kill masses in other countries by using uh, telephone uh, uh, visual mechanisms such as um, screens. I don't know what we call these screens. When we look at something, we push a button and we eliminate five dots on the screen, but only those five dots on the screen are. Now, when we invaded Iraq in the 90s, that was the beginning of urban warfare. It was urban warfare. We went to Baghdad and went from home to home, uh, pulling people out of their homes and fighting an urban war. We began to train our young people to attack people in their homes. Well, the problem is when you do that abroad, these people are going to return home to the United States and they bring that cultural uh, polemic with them, and they have. And so we have uh, these games where everything is killing and destroying and warfare has, technology has changed so that we're using screens on fighter jets rather than someone looking someone else in the eye or seeing a body, a human being being shot. We're we're destroying each other uh, without having to have visual contact. So death and life begins to mean very little. Now we have this shooter in Austin who shot three people dead, and he's still on the loose, for example. How does this guy get to be on the loose? Because clearly, if he were a black man, he would be dead in a morgue somewhere. And there seems to be some kind of strange racial polemic with these shootings also. What is going on? Children shooting up their schools. Seabrook, uh, Sandy, Sandy, uh, what was it called? Sandy Hook, I think, was the place, one of the shootings. Uh, but the point is, is that we need a cultural change, a cultural revolution that will allow us to begin to change the curriculum nationally, to reintroduce civics and government into school, music and art, so that people will have a different cultural attitude, and 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 to move away from violence and and domination, and. Um, I, I believe this is possible. I think it could, it's something that can be handled right now. And why are people walking around and, uh, and buying weapons that can uh, let off hundreds of rounds? That's what I'm talking about. That's what someone has in their home to protect themselves. We look at places in Florida where they have stand your ground. I can shoot my neighbor standing my ground. Well, we need to have stand our ground and stand it for uh, 
Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter, that means all life matters and we're going to stop the violence. It starts with each community raising their hands to say, death no more, no mass, mass shootings, stop the violence. Stop the violence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And I would like to have all my participants to engage in this particular discussion that relates to something that piqued my interest, as Sister Shirley just stated, in terms of what's going on in D.C. with the mail. If I heard it correctly, she stated the mail has been allocated $350 million to help people that utilities bills pay their rent in the past and three months in advance and really aim at getting the landlords some money. Now, who are the landlords? What I found really interesting is that, you know, many times people don't understand how rules and laws are catered to benefit a certain sector of the rich and the wealthy. And, that, and this seems like this may be the case. If, if it is true that, that kind of money has been allocated to help pay the people, um, um, you know, rent off. It's not really so much to help the people, even though it does, but really to put money in a few rich and wealthy landlords. So this is the kind of corruption, I think, that um, U.S. is very sophisticated in in terms of how they can take money from, from the masses and give to the few. And... Um, they don't talk about the conditions for really causing the people to be in the condition that they're in today. They had led to them not to be able to work and not be able to have access to, to resources to do for themselves. So panelists, just based on that phenomenon, what do y'all think about this this, 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 I call a game of hustle, where now the landlords must have some relationship with the politicians in D.C. where they can get some back pocket money. Sister Shirley, I'd like to respond to you first, and I'd like the other panelists to weigh in on this. Sister Shirley, your response to my my little trary just now. Yeah, yes, it's exactly. Now the mayor has, has uh, of course, she has she extended moratoriums regarding the rent and uh, for people to, to not have to be charged. But she knew all along, sooner or later, she was going to have to settle up with the landlords in the city. That has to be part, part of her political calculation. And um, I believe that through this $350 million and by the fact that there were so little facts in who who in particular was going to get it, how they were going to get it, and when suggest that there are bulk amounts of money that will go out the door from the D.C. Treasury to individual landlords throughout the city. And, the, and of course, it looks like a good de- deal to someone if they perhaps get their rent paid in advance three months in advance, as is stated in the email she sent out. Um, and that gives, of course, the landlords uh, comfort that they, will, that, that they won't have to, uh, to worry about getting their rent money. But in the end, this is all money that is going to uh, soothe the landlords 
And during this time of COVID, when there are so many issues in D.C. and, and issues of homelessness and, and incarceration, et cetera, during COVID times, this is a hell of a time to be taking $350 million and passing it over to these guys. Thank you. Brother Haki, this is like another game you're playing with the people when they talk about this concept of welfare, where they transfer the wealth from the poor to the wealthy. What you think, Brother Haki? Uh, precisely right. And the sister of political acuity is very sharp. Uh, she's absolutely correct. So when you talk about political calculations, that's precisely what it is. And one of the things you have to keep in mind, when we talk about, we know often we, on this program we talk about the importance of organization. So you know what? You know who understands the importance of organization? The wealthy. They understand the importance of organization. They're very organized. Uh, you know, so historically when you look at it in terms of business associations, in terms of wealthy people getting together to formulate plans in terms of ripping off the economy, they're very exact in terms of the, the methodology they employ in terms of achieving their objectives. I wouldn't be surprised at all, you know, Brother Africa, if that, you know, those business people, those landlords specifically met with the mayor and said, listen, you release those funds to us, and this is what we're going to do for you in terms of your, uh, in terms of uh, if you seek re-election as the mayor of Washington D.C. Of course, given the level of corruption in America, no one should be surprised that uh, money rules all. And so, as much as we would like to believe there are some principal politicians out here, the reality is that most of them are crooked as crooked as a, as a, as a stink. Uh, but in any event, having said that, I, I think that uh, you know one thing clear. When we talk about the organization of the welfare, when we, even in the context of the, the system, the, the, the capitalist system, when you look at terms of the, the fame, in terms of the willingness to, to assume debt, and to place that debt on his balance sheet. Now, ironically, when they place that, 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 those debts on their balance sheet, it actually creates the hardship and for, for the masses of people out here who won't have access to those funds. But what it does do, it creates access to those funds to the very wealthy people, you know, who really don't need the funds, who in turn use those funds to get even more wealthier. And we don't understand that. And, 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 the, and the more, I think, more pivotal question is that people, people don't understand that in doing that, you've got to understand that and what things you look to Brother Africa is that there's a fundamental, fundamental transfer of wealth from the poorest people in society to the wealthiest people in society. We don't get that. So often these people rail against socialism. Oh, socialism is a bad thing. It's horrible. But no one received more socialism than the rich. So it's time that we understand the, the roots of the game and, 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 and you know, and, and, and to begin to, 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 to speak out in terms of this kind of game that's being perpetuated. Clearly it's all a game. And, and one thing also, and I'm going to conclude with this, I think then you have to understand, you know, as the economy deconstructs, uh, we've got to be very, very clear. Uh, you know, you can't have a system which fundamentally all the money to 1% of the population at the expense of all others. That kind of formula is a prescription for failure, which means that the kind of money you need in terms of revitalizing the economy uh, doesn't exist. Those wealthy people take their money and they do what? They invest it, they invest it in, in, in stock buybacks or they put it on offshore accounts, in which is not taxed. So it means that society becomes poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer. And the outcome is that the, those positions of power, the elite, have to look for someone to convene the scapegoat to blame for the problems the society is confronted with. There's a real, there's a real danger in terms of what it means to be, you know, African or poor, you know, in the society in terms of uh, the potential repercussions, you know, as these people positions of power play these games in terms of blaming people who are powerless 
for the problems that the society uh, encompasses. Uh, so in event, I'll close with that, Brother Africa, but I, I seriously, I think that it's a game that's absolutely correct. Uh, correct. Uh, this is all about uh, political calculation. It's all about how can it benefit the mayor. You know, Brother Moses, Brother Moses, what can we do when we talk about this sophistication and corruption, Brother Moses? What can the people do? Give me some kind of idea. How can we get access to that kind of money? It's the people that need the money, not, not the capitalists who already got it and created it. Talk to me, Brother Moses. What you make of this? We're in a Cat-22 situation. Huh? Poor people and class people and uh, yeah. He's sort of br- yeah. breaking up, breaking up on us, brother Moses. Let me come back to you. Let's go to brother. Uh, uh, yes, brother. Yes, you can hear me. You can hear me. Yes, we can. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. I had some uh, had some, uh some feedback on this thing. Yes, the 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 solution is uh, uh, if I understand your question correctly, brother Africa, um, it, it it boils down to the people. It boils down to the masses, and you know we got to embrace principles, egalitarianism, humanism, um, you know, uh, collectivism. That's what it boils down to. We got to understand uh, the the true meaning of love, the true mean the true meaning of um, I am my brother's keeper, I am my, my sister's keeper. Not not this individualist concept of putting profit before people. And this is the system that we are dealing with. The, the 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 American government or capitalist societies, capitalist government, they treat the masses of people like a like a uh, like a hand me down car. You know, I'm just going to do enough to keep the car running. I'm not going to solve the whole issue by getting a whole motor repair. I'm just going to get a I'm going to get a bandage here. I'm going to get a bandage here to keep enough just to keep it going to get me to point A to point B. That's what that's how they do us. They give they get they just give the people these these uh, artificials like wins. Like oh, you're going to get the 250 million dollars or whatever the the amount of money it, it is, and the masses of people think oh, I'm going to get my rent paid. I'm for three months. And now all along we getting string along. This money going toward going to to, to the to the landlord, you know. This this, this money going to, uh, to the one percent, and and the, and the masses of people still gonna be struggling. And then on the flip side, when you look at taxes, they still you still gonna get the you know get the money. Everything is gonna is on the rise. Uh, 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 you know the areas that you live in or what have you. They bringing in casinos. They bringing in uh, uh, ballparks or whatever whatever the arenas. All this stuff at the same time when you got this going on and that everything is going up. There's no parking. There's no. It's, they 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 done destroyed. They, they they damn near destroyed every avenue of where where people can organize, especially with COVID nineteen. They love this. They they're going to use this to to their benefit uh, to break down the people to keep the people fragmented, break down uh, communities so they can continue. To keep they uh, keep they knit their knee and their foot on their backs and neck. But the, to answer your question, we have to, um, in the words of Brother Anthony, you have to organize. And organize is not just a catch catchphrase; it's action. And it's also you have to study political education. You have to look at historically what happened, uh, what what's been going on in the last 
40, 50 years, generation to generation, man, my God. I mean, the answer, the, the proof is in the pudding. The, the books is right there. The documentaries is right here. The blog talk radio shows is right here. The panelists is right here working in out uh, areas and, and communities and families. I mean, what more, my, my God, man, what more? Can, can 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 you know can, what what more can we do? But you gotta have it boils down as the foundation of having that ego, ego that mindset in our heart of being ego uh, egalitarian ter, ego I'm sorry egalitarianness and humanness. You gotta have care for for people over profit. Thank you, Brother Maurice and Sister Eleanor. You know, one of the things you got to be clear in is that if this is successful in D.C., I can see this becoming a model for all the cities throughout the country where the rich landlords can only get richer. Your thoughts on this this particular um, proposal? Well, quite frankly, it seems like AOBA, the landlord's lobby in the District of Columbia, has been busy during the virus. Because this $361 million, again, as everyone has said, isn't going into the pocket of the people. It's going into the pockets of the landlords. So I see us as uh, in the District of Columbia, which is a city uh, predominantly renters. Um, This is an interesting uh, time because, should we let the landlords take all of us to court and us organize together collectively to fight an eviction? Or should we allow the landlords to pick us off by uh, selecting which of their tenants they allow to receive this public money to cover their arrears rent? So it's, it's, it's quite um, Interesting, because AOVA is a very strong lobby in the District of Columbia. We have uh, a young city council, uh, the Marion Berry uh, days are behind us. Uh, We still have um, people like Vince Gray around, and um, so... What I see this is is uh, putting money in the landlord's pocket. I see the uh, AOBA, and I'm sorry, I don't know the correct name for AOBA, the full name. I think it is uh, something landlords and business uh, building owners and managers. But AOBA is a very strong lobby in the district, and, and I think money should be going to create home ownership to give people an opportunity from this virus, from this this ridiculousness, I think it's time to make sure the indigenous people, that native Washingtonians, are able to be real stakeholders in their city, that perhaps they should move them out of their rental situation and into home ownership situations rather than just paying the landlord off to make sure the District of Columbia has uh, rent control for any property built before 1975. Uh, Technically, it's uh, buildings built after 75 are exempt. So I see uh, us needing to change the rent control laws to uh, 
cover all buildings, all construction under rent control. I think we need to make sure we keep the rent increases to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. That's how they're regulated in the District of Columbia. Your rent increases are the Consumer Price Index plus, uh, plus not to exceed 10%. Now imagine that you could face a 10% rent increase every year. Well, in the district, you very well can. It hasn't happened yet, but the rents are going up greater than inflation. So I think this is an opportunity for us to possibly redirect this money into ownership situations. I also see these large apartment buildings and large companies like Borger Management. I think that... Uh, there needs to be some standard where if they're going to be able to receive these monies, because, of course, the landlords are going to be administering these monies. They're going to be the ones filling out the application for tenants to cover arrears rents. Well, they need, there needs to be a standard where they have to cover everyone's rent in a given property or everyone, uh, or, or, or companies such as William C. Smith, which is a great company, or Borgia, which is a very large company, they need to cover the rents for all their tenants, not to pick and choose. I recently had someone come up to talk to me about being, uh, having been a, in, their rent is in arrears. They've lived in a building for over 25 years. And no one in the office has offered this person anyone, any help. When you're 62 years or older in the district, your rent can only be raised by the CPI. You cannot add that additional percentage not to exceed 10%. So it can only be raised by the Consumer Price Index. This guy is well over 62. He's 70-some years old. And boards of management have never offered him uh, the, the papers to fill out, which the landlord has and can distribute to their residents, to avoid these uh, high rent increases. And now with the covert virus and him being um, a cab driver, he's in arrears rent. Now, he lives around the corner from a woman whom they called and have filled out the paperwork, and her rent is being covered uh, from last year, as um, the woman said, into the future for a few months. How did they select one person over another in the same building? Housing discrimination is... Um, is uh, one of the worst atrocities that you can imagine in the United States. Only in the United States does welfare housing cost the same as luxury housing. And we have a growing problem with homelessness in the district. So what we need to do is to, I think, demand that all arrears rents in, in, in a property of four or more units be paid for all tenants. And that's another good uh, thing I just said. I think the first of these money should go to 
small landlords with four or less units. Any arrears rents that they have, their tenants and themselves should work together to cover those rents. But when you start talking about these huge companies in the District of Columbia uh, uh, getting this, this rent money, I don't know if that's in the interest of the public. I don't want anyone to lose their home, but I think that the landlord should have to write off this rent. I don't think it should be paid to them in arrears. Only in the District of Columbia are you guaranteed a 12% return on your property minus any encumbrance that you may have. What commodity on planet Earth guarantees anyone a 12% return? So when we talk about rent in the district, you would think we're talking about pork bellies or we're talking about corn. Property is viewed as a, a, a commodity, and the district has more than 50% of its residents renting. And with all this mass construction, all of those units are exempt from rent control. So the landlord can may have jacked up your rent and you don't want to challenge it because Covert came and now your back rent can be paid. You know, this seems like a Band-Aid, as the young man said, a Band-Aid coverage. And we need to think about how best to put these monies into permanent long-term housing. And rental housing is not the way. The rent continues to go up. I don't think anyone who has a tenant over 62 who has been living in their building for, for five years or longer, who has not been off um, the paperwork to reduce their rent to the consumer price index and not to exceed it. I don't think any of those landlords should be allowed to participate in this program because this just sounds like a landlord bailout. And you have to remember the district is an enterprise zone. So in other cities like uh, Lima, Peru, the indigenous residents were protected. In Paris, France, indigenous residents were protected, but not the District of Columbia. We've changed the demographic composition of the District of Columbia. It's gone from a historically Afrocentric city to Vanilla Villa. What happened here? There was no atomic bomb. No, the buildings were left standing, but the residents were moved out. In the 2700 block of 16th Street, less than three years ago, every tenant was moved out. Minor, minor changes were made in the building and all new tenants were moved in. And the landlord under DC law could call that substantial rehabilitation and raise the rent 125%. So the people that lived there that were moved out couldn't afford to come back. Going on here is an atrocity. Sister Eleanor, what's going on is what has always been going on is uh, the capitalist is playing game with the mass of the people. But for the sake of time, Sister Eleanor, let me raise this one question with all the panelists, then we'll move on. And I think this particular discussion allowed us a good opportunity. Let's talk about the concept of human rights. What are human rights and what entails human rights? At this point in time, since they won't be so generous to the landlord in D.C., they got a proposal to give them $350 million. You know, as human beings, one of the human rights should be 
Every individual should be entitled and be given the right to have a home. There should be no homeless in in a society with this kind of wealth. So won't we just allow everyone to just become homeowners of the home they live in and they wouldn't have to pay anything? What about this question of human rights? Isn't it an issue that we should look at this question of having access to a home as a right and not as a privilege, not as something that based upon an individual ability to purchase? Sister Shirley, I want you to respond to that first, and I'd like to hear a response from everybody else. Let's look at this as a human right issue. Let everybody pretty on on the home. Sister Shirley, your thoughts on this? Look at this, this question of homeless as a human rights. Yeah, this is absolutely a human rights issue. Every Everyone should have a home because it is in the home that life thrives. And for people to, to grow up, to thrive, to be together, form their lives, have security with each other, that is what produces healthy families. And so, yes, it should be defined as a human right, but in this society, that concept is totally absent. Brother Haki, they won't have the homeowners make money. Allow everybody to own the homes they're in now. Home is paid for, and let's move on. What do you think about that issue, Brother Haki? This question of home, Brother Africa, homeless, Brother this Africa, question of human rights. Yes. But Brother Africa, prior to uh, responding to that particular question, let me just go back to something that Sister Eleanor said. I think it's important we clarify. One of the things when we talk about the consumer price index, we were very clear. Remember Bill Clinton, uh, when, he, when, he, when he talked about the consumer price index, he talked about the consumer price index change. In other words, what he was doing was revealing that what they intentionally do is that the, the inflation in society is understated. If they understate inflation, that means everybody's doing well. So, of course, prices can rise. That includes rents. So we've got to be very careful in terms of, you know, this, this consumer price index uh, uh, cons- uh, as being a, a, a factor in terms of, you know, rents, uh, level rents that, you, that are paid out. Secondly, I think also with respect to consumer price index, I think this is also important we understand that it's quite a paradox. When we talk about marginal tax rates and we talk about the tax rate the wealthy pay and wealthy enclaves, wealthier communities, actually the, the CPI uh, overstates inflation. And overstate inflation, they pay a less tax rate than people who are poor and suffering. So clearly when you talk about consumer price index, you've got to understand there's a bit of a paradox. And so what we think they're doing and what they're actually doing are two different things. So what I encourage people to do is to go back and look at this question in terms of marginal tax rates and understand precisely what they're saying to you and look at the question in terms of the function of consumer price index. Because none of that stuff is going to hold down the prices of inflation because, after all, and this gets into what the question of Brother Africa is raising, and that is it's all about markets. It's all about the wealthy uh, 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 benefiting at the expense of all others. And so when we talk about uh, home ownership as, as, a, as a human right, it's not going to happen in the context of capitalist society. Number one, capitalism is not, about, it's not about the collective. It's about the individual. In the context of the individual, we're talking about wealthy individuals. So the Constitution is very clear on that point when they talk about the minority. They're not talking about racial minorities or ethnic minorities. They're talking about wealthy white, wealthy, white, wealthy white men who own property, who have assets. So that's what they're talking about. 
So when you talk about home ownership as a right, it doesn't communicate. It doesn't jail. It doesn't, you don't understand what you're saying. Because essentially what you're doing is you're obliterating, obliterating markets. And capitalism is all about the market. And of course, we know the market is not, not something that, that they exist. We know markets are something that's made up by, you know, the capitalists. They determine what the market is. They determine what you pay, what, what you sell, and so forth and so on. So this notion that somehow markets are a legitimate expression in terms of human business activity is so crucial. It's so uh, 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 nonsense. It's so nonsensical. But anyway, I, you know, so the question, to answer your question, Brother Alfred, no, 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 no. What you propose could never happen in the context of capitalism. If, in order for this to come into fruition, the masses of people have to take a stand. They have to say, listen, enough is enough, and they got to be willing to fight for it. Other than that, it's not going to happen. I mean, that's just a cold reality. The society is organized to, to benefit the wealthy at the expense of all others. And when we talk about home ownership, uh, when they look at home ownership, they're talking about, you know, Capitalize in terms of a way in which they make lots and lots of money. So when we talk about assets and talk about the wealthy, that 10% of the population who, who have all the stocks and bonds, who control all the property in, the, in America, their focus is to make money. So when we talk about 17 million homes in, in this country are vacant that could, the people could live in, they're vacant because, because it's a, the, the bottom line is about making money. And as long as, as, long as the, the, the Department of Treasury, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve, continue to pump out large sums of money and to make investments possible, then these assets, these homes have great value. And so, therefore, these people, these, these 10% of the population, actually 1% of the population, who keep these assets, these 17 million homes, makes money by simply they can always trade off the value of those homes, you know, and make even more money for investments. So they get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. So let me get to understand that the problem is systemic. And unless we're going to address the systemic issue, none of the stuff is going to change. And people have to realize that. You have to give up the patriotism. You have to give up the nationalism. You have to give up. You have to give up all of that stuff, which says that your obligation is to go along to get along. We're in a we're in a life and death struggle in terms of the right to exist in society. So when we talk about home ownership, for them to have a home is equivalent to saying that you have a right to exist. As far as the capital is concerned, you do not have a right to exist. Not told with that. Not told with that. Brother Moses, your take on this concept of. When you talk about home, it should be viewed as a human right. Well, definitely should be viewed as you know, housing should be as a human right, uh, just like education, just like health care. But as it already been stated, there's no use to keep beating the dead horse. It's not going to happen under capitalism. It's going to take a socialist system and a socialist government. Uh, you know, uh, this 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 whole uh, Society has a culture, and this culture is based upon the state, and and the and the politics determines economics, and and um and so without a, a, a political revolution, there it's very unlikely there's going to be any any qualitative uh, cultural revolution, and so you know the home ownership, education, healthcare is all going to take some real real conscious people in power. Who are directing the state in that direction? That direction. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Brother Anthony, you've been listening to this conversation. What do you think about this issue? Look at this issue of home and homelessness should be viewed more as an issue of human rights. Uh, indeed. Uh, as a, as a matter of fact, because um, <coughs> you know what. You, you know, without uh, you, you know, without a home, you know, uh, you know, you don't have a fa- uh, 
a foundation in which to, uh, uh, you know, raise uh, families properly. And, uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, I mean, uh, every, uh, every human being needs a home. And it's definitely a human right. But it's not recognized by the U.S. because capitalism is so entrenched here. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the only rights that are recognized are, 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 are the rights of individuals to exploit one another. And uh, but homelessness, but 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 uh, the right to a home is definitely a, a, a right that belongs to everyone, regardless of their economic circumstances. Brother Maurice, check this game out, Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, check this out. They created this pandemic, created this situation where jobs will no longer be available. As resort people, as resort people cannot work, they fall behind their payments or their homes. Then they find out that you know jobs may be gone forever. That means you may not never work again, which means you may indefinitely lose your home permanent. The realtors will get your home back and they resell it. Now some people say that you know they you know, they can't do what I'm proposing, but they do everything else they want to do. So what you make of this issue, Brother Maurice? So this game, if they really want people to keep their home, they need to look at the equation from a different perspectives. And this issue of having a home is a human right issue and make it become law and allow these people to just keep their home and the state take up the bill. Your response, Brother Maurice, what you think? Yes, great question, yes, great, great question. Great, great question. Uh, uh, and I, I just echo something that King said in 1968, February 6, 1968. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. He was saying that this American government got, you know, we got uh, gigantic skyscrapers that can kiss the skies. He said we got spaceships that penetrated through oceanic depths. And we have, air, and through our airplanes, we have draft uh, distance and place time and change. Um, you know, just look, just looking at that, we have all of that, and he he was still trying to appeal to the moral, the moral uh heart of this American uh system, government or capitalist system. Um, it should be common sense that you know housing, we should have the, we should have right our right to, right to housing, right right to food, uh right you know right to uh, labor land. You know, we talking about housing. They, my God, they. they these people don't even allow, want to allow the, 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 the master to have land, man. So you need land in order to have a foundation to build a home, you, you know. And, and I say this, man. I remember my cousin, uh, he gave me this story. He used to work at 7-Eleven, man. And he said that the managers, they had they had the employees, they used to throw away, you know, they used to give away the food to to um, the homeless. It was a homeless brother who used to come, in, uh, they used to hang out at 7-Eleven after hours. And they used to give the food, the food they was about to throw, throw it away, they'll give it to the homeless. So they stopped that. They they started throwing the food in the in the trash in the garbage can. So once they started throwing the food in the garbage can, the brother, the homeless brother, he caught on to that and he was going in the trash can to get the food. Now once the manager caught on that the, the homeless brother was going in the trash can to get the food, he had my cousin and other employees to put chemicals in the trash can on the food and, and put it in the trash can so if they eat it 
they would get sick and they would not eat it no more. They would not go back for it. This is the type of mindset that this, uh, I'm not going to let up, man. This is the type of mindset that the capitalist system developed and created among managers, among uh, people who are in, in, in higher positions of, 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 of employees or, of, or who are, you know, who are, who basically who are in charge of higher workers on these jobs. This is what, this is the type of mindset that we're dealing with when you're dealing with capitalism, you know, and that's, and, and, and that's what it is, man. It, you know, human rights is, is a foreign word to people who, who, who are in charge of, under this capitalist government. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, you do not care about human rights. You might play like you do, but you do not. You, I don't. I, I mean, I, I, and, and it's and it's and it's straight up. I mean, it's, it speaks for itself. You got Democrats raping Haiti by the other name Clinton, Clint, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton. I mean, you, you know, I mean, how much more can you? I don't mean to be on a tangent here, but how much more can America show you that they do not care about us or the Western powers, the capitalist system? How much more can they do to show us? That we're not going to do a damn thing for you. You you have to do it. We have to do it ourselves. Now they having a celebration. I, I say this and I conclude. And in my hometown, Richmond, Virginia, about Jackson War. They got this Jackson War, which was a, a a what you call a little Africa, or what some people call a Black Wall Street. But I like to use the term little Africa, right? Because it was a settlement of free Africans from slavery. They built up their own community. This was not given by uh, the United States government. They built it up. They built it up. But now they put an interstate. They they put an interstate ninety five uh, 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 um, highway through the neighborhood. They put a coliseum through the neighborhood. They put crack cocaine in the neighborhood, drugs in the neighborhood, broken neighborhood down. And now in two thousand twenty one, they want to have a big celebration of uh, Happy Birthday Jackson Ward. A big celebration. A big a bourgeoisie commercial celebration. Everybody got these brand shirts of Jackson Ward and celebrated Jackson Ward. Hell, they didn't celebrate it when it was really existing, when we had Maggie Walker and all these, all these people who was a who was a, a student of Garvey, Marcus Garvey. What happened to that? You, you see what I'm saying? So when we talk, you cannot talk to these people about human rights at this point. They don't care about it. They're going to give you a reform. They're going to put, they're going to take your, they're going to take your leaders and take them all back and assassinate them and kill them. And in the words of Jago Hoover, there would not be another black messiah unless we give them to you. Marcus, I mean, uh, Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, uh, 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 you know, so, so on and so on, unless we give it to you. That's, 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 that's what we're dealing with. We can't, we can't wait on no, uh, we are the black messiah. The people is king. The people, the people, the people is, is the leader. We have, to, we have to do it ourselves to get our human rights. That's the only way we're going to get it. Like Malcolm X said, you, you can't get no freedom. Freedom is bloody. You can't get no freedom. The American Revolution itself, they didn't get their freedom. They stole they stole their freedom, but they didn't get their freedom through blood, the blood of an African crispy at Christmas addicts. We gotta we gotta we gotta get we gotta do it. We gotta get our freedom. We gotta be the ones to be willing to get our human human rights. That's the only way we're gonna get it. Maurice and then have finally thought for this particular topic. Sister Eleanor, we'll let you in on this question of housing and human rights. Where are you at on this issue, Sister Eleanor? Well, I, um, definitely housing, health care, education, and no doubt food are basic human rights 
A society cannot function without these basic things. And um, I, I think that with this money in the district, a perfect time to create home ownership. As um, everyone knows, um, HUD is going out of the housing business, so they're privatizing public housing. And um, rather than privatizing it, I think the public housing should be owned by its residents. It's one of the few places in the black community where there's still a community. Many of us in the District of Columbia have spent our lives moving from place to place, not because we chose to move, but because the landlord forced you to move, and you're paying for this every time you move. So housing is definitely a human right. Health care is definitely a human right, as is education and substance, food is a human right. And uh, this whole phenomenon that's occurring um, where people are so confused, they say, I've had people say to me, oh, they don't want to live anywhere. They want to be homeless. No one wants to be homeless. No one wants to be without shelter. We may have created a cultural environment that makes people believe they don't deserve housing, but that's why we need a revolution, a cultural revolution that changes the way we think about things. The District of Columbia, for example, has universal health care, but with the changing demographic, people come here and they still find reasons not to give folks that live in the District of Columbia equal access to health care. There's still a reason not to give equal access to health care. I don't know why, but I know that we can change it by changing our attitudes about health care, changing our attitudes about housing and education and people eating, having access to wholesome, good food. So in, in reference to housing, it's definitely a human right. And to have a functioning society and a high-functioning economy in the future, housing will be an essential, essential component to that basic human right. And now, more than ever, we need to face the reality of land ownership and trying to green, you know, to create a green planet and to stop this global warming it's up to the masses to organize. And I think this $361 million should be better spent in creating home ownership opportunities in the District of Columbia rather than paying landlords arrears rent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor and our panelists for your opposition views on what's going on in your world community. What we're going to do right now, we're going to go down what we call go down remembering lane. We're going to take a look at the past. And we're going to listen a few minutes since we're talking about um, socialist you know, tendencies and concepts. We're going to talk a little bit about Cuban socialism from respective Brother Kwame Ture. We're going down the remembering lane. We're going to listen to this particular uh, uh, piece here. 
And when we come back, we'd like to get your response because I think Cuba is very um, an important uh, model that we must take a look at at this point in time and see what we can learn from them and how we can apply the things that they have been able to create to be successful to create a society where human beings can begin to function more human beings and have those kind of things that all human beings have. They are a model that definitely addresses the issue of human beings and the necessity of human rights. So let's just listen to this issue on Cuba and socialism by Brother Kwame Ture, and when we come back, we'd like to have your response to this segment. Go on down and remember your name. This is Africa on the Move. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture, he was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> they said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> either you believe in God or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active inactions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. Right. If your people are being raped, and you're looking at television, enjoying a time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. 
America prides itself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. So are my mama. I know what I'm talking about. She'd be a little skewed, but because Cuba's a poor country, big daddy. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> so they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they called me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whip them on half a bowl. <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out here always planning, look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro's a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education, not a penny. And you look at poor Cuba and see its concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire them up. Shoot them all. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. You're going down memory lane. And we were just reflecting a uh, commentary that was made by Brother Kwame Tremere earlier um, during the stay on the issue of the importance of principles, Cuban socialism. As we've been discussing tonight, issues that are going on in our community, and particularly this recent phenomenon in Washington D.C., in Washington D.C., where there has been a proposal to give the mayor three hundred fifty million dollars to pay landlords for folks who may be in their back rent and everything. I thought it was um, interesting to uh, maybe look at some of the issues that were shared with this brief presentation by Brother Kwame Ture, where he talked about this question of human being developing principles and values and just even look at Cuba as a model of how they deal with their people's needs and concerns. When you listen to this piece, Brother Anthony, what do you take from this that we maybe could apply and use it today as the people continue to struggle under capitalism 
not only in the U.S., but throughout the world. You would take Brother Anthony. Certainly. Certainly. Um, I think the, 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 one of the things that we can take from Kwame's presentation is the importance of political education and permanent organization. The reason why uh, uh, the African masses suffer the way they do in the U.S. and other countries dominated by capitalism or neocolonialism is because we are disorganized. We dis, we're disorganized and we're confused by uh, by capitalism, and uh, and 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 those areas are, uh, 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 of confusion we uh, can o- can only be addressed by an organized people through permanent political education. And uh, and the thing about it though, and the thing about it though, because of this lack of political education amongst our people, our people don't understand that we uh, that 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 we have a human right to housing, healthcare, education, because without these things cannot develop to their fullest human potential and suffer needlessly. But but we continue to fall for it because we do not politically educate ourselves among ourselves enough. And we're not organized. We got to get better organized. Once the Cubans got permanently organized and they had and they had their revolution back in that, uh, uh, you know, which culminated in their establishment of a socialist society, they were able to throw off the yoke of neocolonialism, which had plagued Cuba for nearly sixty years. After that, defeated Spain to gain its independence. So, uh, you know, the important lessons I think here is the fact that even with limited resources, they're shared in an equitable manner. They, uh, there's enough for everybody. I think that's a, I think that's a key takeaway I, I, I get from Kwame's presentation on Cuba is that it is that if we share the resources equally, unlike what happens under capitalism, where where where, 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 where the wealthy uh, reap the benefits uh, uh, of the labor of the masses, in a socialist society, everybody benefits from the labor of the masses. Thank you, Brother Anthony and Sister Shirley. In Cuba, they will have landlords. Is that a good thing or a bad thing from your perspective? What can you take from this tape, Sister Shirley? Uh, I'm sorry. What, I, I missed the first missed few the words, Brother Lynn. I said in Cuba, they don't have the landlords. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> from this, this tape, what can we learn from Cuba, Sister I, Shirley? I, I, 
I, I think that's that's a that's a real good thing all over Cuba and would be a great thing all over the world, uh, for sure. Um, one thing I, I'd like to make a comment uh, about uh, Kwame's comments and also something that Anthony said as well. Um, what I like so much about this clip that you played of Kwame speaking, it was very uh, carefully he set out the rules of how you look at socialism. And that is, it's not cheating. It's either this or it's that, and it's not in between, confuse the situation. And that goes back to something that, that, that struck me that Anthony said, and he said that we're confused by capitalism. And I see this all the time, especially by people in the United States. And they, having grown up in a capitalist society, I think the first thing you are taught as a child is to push the other kid out of the way so that you can get ahead of them. And that instinct stays within people unless at some point in their lives they begin to realize that another way is possible, that we can, we can all uh, move together. And um, I think that, as Anthony said, uh, educate, there must be more thorough education and uh, that the benefits of socialism are are there they are present uh they they are things that we need badly and we've got to figure out better ways to communicate them and to just put a capper on the end with the end of this to hell with the landlords as well all right thank you sister shelly brother hackey talk to me brother hackey Every time we talk about Cuba in the West, they always talk about how bad Cuba is. I know you had a chance to see Cuba for yourself. Listen to what Brother Kwame stated and listen to the realities of what you experience in Cuba. When you think about Cuba in terms of how they address the people's needs and when you look at how this country and capitalism address the people's needs, what lessons can you draw from your practical experience of seeing Cuba for yourself? Understanding the world that you live in today, Brother Hackey. Talk to us, Brother Hackey. Are you there, Brother Hackey? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yeah. Uh, clearly, there's a contrast between the United States and uh, and Cuba. Uh, when you look at the, the, the humane experience in terms of Cubans, I mean, it's, it's a very beautiful thing. Uh, the mere fact that the government stated uh, stated mission is to ensure 
the hostile development of human beings, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of institutions that are erected in Cuba to achieve those ends. And so when you look at in terms of the ability of people in terms of learning or the people's ability to, to work together, the ability in terms of, of sharing and caring, it's amazing. And but when you contrast with the U.S., when you look at the, all the buildings, the anger, uh, the people's inability to work together, when you look at all this, you say, wow, what? so precisely what's going on here? So clearly we understand the role institutions play in terms of uh, determining to a large extent, you know, the way people think and the way people behave. Now, what the capitalist has been able to do, they've been able to convince people that the institutions of capitalist society are some of the best institutions in the world. But unless one of the things they won't talk about, certainly there's no discourse around this issue, but it's question around in terms of why people are so miserable. You've got a society in which people are making millions, trillions of dollars, millions, trillions of dollars, but they're miserable. So there's something fundamentally skewed in terms of what's going on in America, and people don't quite, can't quite grasp it. But one of the things I want to real mention real quick, though, but this is important in terms of question around, around you know, organization. One of the things that I don't think the question in terms of that people don't get it in terms of necessity of organization. I think people get it. I think a lot of people get that. I think, but what you're asking people to do is sacrifice. I think that's the rub. I think for a lot of people, the, the whole question in terms of sacrifice is maybe a bit too much. So when, so when Kwame talks about principles, uh, most people don't be principled. Growing up in American society, growing up in a capitalist society generally, uh, when you talk about being principled, you simply rub people the wrong way because you're living in a society essentially say expediency is the way to go. So under expediency, any and everything can be justified as long as there is some tangible benefit, at least in your mind, uh, to, the, to, the, to the individual. And so, therefore, when we talk about this expediency, then we can't realistically talk about when we talk about things like organization, then people say, well, I know how to feel organized. A, I have to be principled. Or B, I have to acknowledge there's a problem, and C, I got to be willing to stand up to, to for a resolution to that problem. People are not prepared to do that. It's not that they don't understand there's a problem; they understand there's a problem. I can remember, uh, you know, talking to people talking about, like the sister alluded to, people talk about, you know, uh, 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 uh people who don't work. It's just lazy. They don't want to work. And try to calm, calmly explain to them, no, no, no. Listen to me. There's a system in place which they only can employ X number of people in order to keep profits high. It's not that people don't want to work. Systematically, those who profit from their unemployment makes lots of money. Oh, that's bull. That's bull. That's crazy. Just making excuses. Well, fast forward 2008. Well, over 50 million people unemployed currently and growing every day. Well, those same people who allege that people are lazy, who don't want to work, those same people don't now don't have a job. Are they amenable to organization? No, because the question turns to expediency. They still thinking, well, you know what? You know, it's apparently something I did wrong. If I just work hard and keep looking, everything's going to be all right. So I think there's a certain amount of uh, self-illusion delusion that has to play, play out before people come to the realization that they are amenable to the question in terms of organization. And I think capitalism is going to wake people up gradually to the reality in terms of what's going on. Because I think the reality is inescapable. I think the, the hardships, the, the, the trauma, I mean, the devastation is just so in your face. I think it's going to compel a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be amenable to organizations and say, you know what, I'm not only going to start listening to programs that enlighten me as to what's going on in the world, but I'm going to join organizations that are actually fighting for the interests of, of humanity. So clearly, you know, Brother Africa, you know, Cuba uh, is the kind of place that, you know, I, I, you know, I admire. I, you, know, I, you know, I would, hey, I would love to be able to move to Cuba and live there. You know what I mean? Um, um, you know, but I realize that Cuba is a small country, a country of 10, 11 million people. You know, it has to share problems in terms of, you know, confronting this this, this um, blockade by the U.S., which is creating tremendous economic problems for the country. 
But despite it all, Cuba continues to, to do great things despite the embargo. But I understand that, you know, one of the things I don't want to contribute to Cuba's hardship in terms of moving there, you know, which I might take a job from some Cuban who, you know, who's been there all their life, uh, you know, who deserves that job by virtue of, of being uh, um, native to Cuba. So therefore, for that reason, you know, I don't, you know, I would, you know, I would move to Cuba unless I became independently wealthy and I could afford to, afford to start businesses, businesses to employ people, then, of course, in the something of that nature, I would, be, I would love to move to Cuba. But bearing that, I simply I feel it's, it's not the principal thing to do to move to Cuba and displace a potential Cuban worker. So that's just my own personal thing. But clearly, Brother Africa, I think the biggest fear, and I close with this, but the biggest fear in terms of Cuba as far as the ruling class is concerned, once American people begin to understand what Cuba really is, the people in America are going to start agitating to they want to be more like Cuba. And I think that's the biggest fear, which explains why this, this aggression against a small country of 10 to 11 million people. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. And Brother Maurice, listen to the piece on Kwame, Principles, Socialism in Cuba. What can you apply from that piece to what's going on today Have you discuss this whole issue of housing in the U.S., this whole question of human rights, this whole question of human beings just interacting and treating each other as human beings. What do you take from this, Brother Maurice? Talk to me. Yes, uh, as Kwame uh, Ture stated, Kwame stated, he said he, he, he couldn't say it any better. He said either you're going to be hot or cold, and either you're a part of the problem or you're a part of the solution. There's only, it's only two ways to look at it. You know, either you're going to be against against capitalism or you're going to be against socialism. By being against socialism, you're just going to keep going along with capitalism like like a kid believing in Santa Claus. Oh, I see gifts underneath the tree, so I know Santa Claus did it. I know. Santa Claus did it. We have ESPN, so I know I know this is a good system. We have I have Boston, I have McDonald's, I have Walmart. I know we got a good system. Some countries don't have McDonald's. Come on, man, get 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 out of the get out of uh, fantasy world. Get out of your mind. Get out of your brain. Thomas Ray said it best. Either you're going to be a part of the solution. You're going to get politi- you're going you're going to educate politically educate yourself more about what we're dealing with about the people in power about this government why we keep having police killing you got to you got to do the research why why are we uh continue to have uh what they call um um uh, ah they keep um recessions why we keep having recessions why we keep having depressions why why can't find no jobs why why every Every election, man, for the last 50 years, we've been in war. We, it's jobs. Oh, it's a jobs crisis. Oh, stop the violence. It's the same ongoing game going on all the time. So, like, Kwame Tureka couldn't say it no better. Either you're a part of the problem, problem or you're a part of the solution. It's up to you to decide that. Hey, we we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your response to what you heard, Brother Kwame Ture, and how they apply to what we've been discussing tonight. Give me some of your thoughts, Brother Moses. Because this is um, as usual, others are kind of insight into what's going on. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you either are part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And that, that, is, that is the uh, the that's the, the struggle. Uh, we have to take the side, the side, you know, whether capitalism is a good thing or a bad thing, and whether this, this capitalist government is a good thing or a bad thing. And, 
sooner or later, you know, we're going to have to get organized accordingly to how to believe uh, and, uh, and, and you know, if you continue to study, study, study the dialect between dialect and historical materialism, Marxism, the struggle practically day to day will train us to be revolutionaries and, uh, and um, you know, we just, we take a stand. I don't know how, uh, any other thing. You, Brother Moses, this is Eleanor, if you're on my board, what I need you to do, I think I lost your number, what I need you to do, Sister Eleanor, please hit one for me right quick. Hit one and we'll bring you in before we make our transition. If you hear me, Sister Eleanor, please hit one and I'll see you on the board. Sister Eleanor, your, your thoughts on what you heard from Brother Kwame Jure and how it applies to what some of the things we've been discussing today. The mic is yours. Well, well, uh, it, uh, uh, Kwame's it, comments Kwame's were, so were so enlightening, enlightening because, uh, because uh, as uh, was as stated uh, before, was you're stated either a part of the problem or a part of the solution. And I think and part, I think of, part uh, of, uh, as the as other speakers, speakers have said, said, is that is at an early age, we're taught to embrace this individualism. So some of us may have intellectually embrace uh, democratic socialism, but in our day-to-day life, we haven't embraced this concept because we're always operating as capitalists taking advantage of others. Uh, And uh, that's unfortunate. If I may, um, Brother Africa, When I talked about earlier rent control, I was talking about in the District of Columbia and uh, rent control having been established here uh, in 1975. Kwame, in talking about revolution, we need, and this is an opportunity for revolution right now in this small District of Columbia to reject the idea of paying the landlords and embrace the idea of creating home ownership where we could give people an opportunity for home ownership, educate them to be able to maintain their home, set some guidelines where the home couldn't be sold, you know, as speculating on the property in the district, but to create home ownership opportunities for residents and to surrender the apartments to the landlords. Let them have their property. Let them live in their properties. And Cuba is certainly an example, a model of social justice, human rights. Healthcare is a human right. I don't know of any landlords in Cuba. The embargo, the U.S. embargo has a horrific impact on the Cuban economy because it's not only restricting uh, the U.S. interaction with Cuba, but it blocks other countries from working with Cuba. So, again, I have to just urge the lifting of the embargo 
time and has worked to eliminate and squash this world pandemic. And uh, I thank you for playing that uh, Kwame Nkuma speech. I had never heard it, quite frankly. And uh, it really made me reflect on how many quote-unquote communists I know that really have operated as individual capitalists was espousing revolutionary thought, but it's really hard to to walk the walk. And I uh, realize that, and uh, I think the working class is set to be mobilized around the issues of education, health care, housing, caring for the elderly, and other economic and social rights. Sister Eleanor, it was the the tape you played, for those who've been listening, it was by Kwame Ture, so I may know him back in the 60s as formerly known as Douglas Carmichael. But what we're going to do right now, if you listen to the program, you have heard anything that you would like to respond to, or you'd like to contribute to some of the discussions that have taken place tonight, feel free to call 323-679-0841, and please hit 1. If you hit 1, we will acknowledge your last four numbers, and you will have your say. Again, if you listen to the program, you have some thoughts, some ideas you'd like to convey, we welcome you. Please hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So on that note, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a, a revolutionary station break, and when we come back, we're going to make the transition to our theme tonight, the challenge of change, the challenge of change. Talking about challenge of change, Cuba is also a good example of that. So what we're going to do is, we're going to pause for this call, take this rubbish uh, cultural break, and when we come back, we want to engage with us as we discuss different issues, ideas that are going on in our world as related to our theme tonight, the challenge of change. This is Africa on the move with Brother Africa. We'll be right back. Passport Rev. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon the Legend. Fuck the Bell Radio. There is. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue or silence, or forever be our own down. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. 
Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Fight behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, and Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new I said, what if we been lied to, most of our freaking lives Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right Your arrogance precedes you What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me A man lay dead in the street today I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have bumped my head, and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away. We'd like to welcome everybody back to Africa on the Move. We're in the seat. We'll take the heat. As we define it, we'll stand behind it. We'll make our transition now as we talk about today's theme, which is on the 18th of April the 4th, 2021, Part 2, The Challenge of Change. You know, when we talk about change, we know that's the only thing permanent. All things change at all times. Nothing stay the same. So when we talk about change and we look at the struggle in history in Brazil, there's an interesting article we would like to advocate for um, you to take a look at. If you get a chance, we'd like for you to take a look at this article because it raises many issues, but one of the major issues that it raised for me is the issues of human rights in terms of how the government has a policy that they have put in place that seem like they are using the issue of the coronavirus as a tool to eliminate its citizens, particularly its Afro-Brazilian citizens. Brother Haki, when you look at this particular article, uh, what do you take from it in terms of it seems to be a deliberate um, policy by the government to want to use this as a tool to eliminate 
uh, particularly citizens, particularly the Afro-Brazilian community, your take from this article as it relates to race and equality, Brother Haki? Yeah, well, I think Bolsonaro, the president of, uh, president of uh, Brazil, I think he's very calculating. I think you see the COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity, you're right, uh, in terms of not only um, uh, persecuting those who despise, but to, to essentially to, to, to um, reimagine the institutions in Brazil so as you know, to carry out his will in the process to facilitate more racism uh, against uh, indigenous and African people while at the same time accumulating much and much power, more and more power. So one of the things when I, when I think about Bolsonaro and I think about in terms of his policies, you know, I think about uh, Donald Trump in terms of his policies. So one of the things, apparently, you know, his strategy is very, very effective. I mean, there fortunately there have been those officials, you know, in Brazil who see uh, what he's doing is fundamentally wrong, who have stepped down and uh, who have stepped down uh, and uh, want to be a part of that. Uh, but of course, there's always those who take their place who are willing to carry out, you know, his agenda, even if they know not only does it undermine the country, but it, but it facilitates a great deal of division in a society. But as far as Bolsonaro is concerned, it's not about it's not about the division. It's all about personal uh, uh, wealth enhancement. And so, therefore, by creating all this chaos, particularly as it relates to ethnicity, you know, in Brazil, he creates a perfect opportunity in terms of allowing his business partners to you know go to the Amazon, for example, in terms of cutting down trees or displacing indigenous people there in the Amazon for the sole purpose of, of personal enrichment. So this guy is a quintessential capitalist, and uh, so nobody should be surprised that the kind of things he's doing uh, is, is, uh, is, is part and parcel of what capitalists do. I mean, it's just that he just doesn't, he, he lacks the finesse in terms of carrying out his bloody policy, but nonetheless, uh, the policy is effective in the sense that it's achieving what he wants to achieve, namely, you know, wealth enhancement, and I'll close with that. Brother Haki, Sister Shirley, when you read this article again, the fundamental issue came to my mind is this question of a deliberate policy of genocide his own citizens, particularly those that he doesn't have a liking for, which as Brother Haki stated, indigenous African people. What comes to your mind when you read this article? What stood out the most for you, Sister Shirley? Well, it's... Well, it, it can't amount to, can't amount to genocide. genocide. I, I, there's no other way that you no, can describe it. The the effect of his policies uh, can have no other effect than to destroy those people who are the most poor, have the least resources, uh, and you put the cover of COVID on top of this, and his uh, his uh, governmental decision to ignore the uh, COVID pandemic, pandemic uh, and how it proliferates. Uh, this is an out of control, failed state with a diabolical. Uh, uh, primary point, and that is killing a majority of its black, brown, indigenous citizens. What do you take away from this article? Particularly, you know, when I read it, I'm looking at um, similarities between his policy and those in the U.S. under the Trump administration. 
Uh, what is your take, Brother Anthony? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Um, uh, well, there's a similar, well, there's, there's a pattern. Um, uh, uh, Brazil is a, is a huge settler colony like the U.S., and uh, it's said that it's not as, uh, you know, in, uh, as highly, you know, industrialized as the U.S. is. But the, but the, but I see similarities between uh, the suffering of the Africans and indigenous people in Brazil and those in the, in the U.S. And... Uh, and uh you know is very similar uh the biggest differences are uh are, 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 are in the languages that are spoken uh and uh but if you if you study certain colonies around the world uh there's certain patterns you notice they all uh that that uh you know uh survival of the indigenous people in all of them is a life and death struggle and uh and uh you know this is um you know it, uh you know this is the biggest take uh take away from it is the fact that uh uh a uh, bolsonaro like trump was in denial about uh the uh coronavirus pandemic when it went when it first uh, struck there and uh you know and uh and uh his policy remind, r- r- reminds me in way, in many ways of the uh, 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 uh of the duop inside the u.s in terms of their regard uh for african and indigenous people and uh and uh you know uh they're the ones and in both countries they're the ones who uh who 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 bear the brunt of the suffering a brunt of the violence against the uh uh the masses of working people and um you know and uh you know and uh you know the dis uh you know not having an independent political organization and uh you know and uh it's uh you know and until the people uh get organized and say enough is enough this is, this is going to continue unfortunately as Brother Mike was saying, look like in Missouri, they don't care about us. What you think, Sister Eleanor? Well, Bolsonaro certainly doesn't seem to care about the people of Brazil. And Brazil always interests me because outside of Nigeria, it's the second largest Afrocentric country in the world. And it has a huge indigenous population as well. So when I read that they had record number deaths, 3,900 or more deaths per day, it just reminded me, as the earlier speaker had said, that both Bolsonaro as well as Donald Trump didn't believe that the coronavirus was any more than a flu. And uh, the devastation, the life devastation and the deaths, 
are unbelievable. I know that Brazil is going to have an election, I believe, next year. And perhaps this is some kind of conspiracy to restrict the 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 voting population to keep Bolsonaro in office. However, I think it's time for him to go and uh, help the health crisis, the fact that the hospital system collapsed. I really don't know what to say, and I feel that's the responsibility of the government of Brazil that let this crisis happen. And uh, I don't know what the World Health Organization can do. Hopefully they can intervene uh, and 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 uh, not let Brazil go through this in isolation and to step up to squashing uh, this pandemic with mass immunity, mass um, doses of the vaccine for the people of Brazil, as I have urged us, uh, as I had said before, I think Pfizer and Moderna, Moderna in particular, because uh, the taxpayers paid for the development of this vaccine, that we should demand that these companies make our vaccine formation, the formulas, whatever it is that it takes to produce these uh, vac- these vaccines to be made public, for it not to be proprietary information, but for the public to have access to it. Because as we said, health care is a human right. So now it's time for the people in the United States to stand up and demand that health care be a human right on planet Earth for the sake of all of our lives to squash this pandemic so that's it. The article was four pages of shocking information. Okay. Brother Maurice, talk to us. Talk to us, Brother Maurice. In Brazil, the indigenous African people got some serious problems when we're talking about the challenge of change. What you make and what you take from this article, from your perspective, Brother Maurice? Uh, to echo uh, the previous panelist's words, you know, it's the same same gang going on all the time. Bolsonaro, he's a Trump stooge, you know. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, Brazil is a settler colony. Um, a lot of Africans are being murdered. A lot of uh, everyday workers are being murdered in Brazil on a daily basis. Um, you know, as I spoke to about Cuba, Earlier, their their uh, percentage rate of they got a high recovery uh, rate from uh, you know people who who suffer with COVID. Um, as one of the panelists stated earlier, um, medical medical right is a human is a human right. Medical care, health care. Um, but when you when you have these once again when you have these um, puppets, neo-colonialists or capitalists, capitalists in power, this, this is this is what you're going to get. Um, and, I, and I, I conclude with that. 
Ricky, Brother Maurice, Brother Moses. We have some problem with our board. I'm going to ask you if you're on that board, please hit one on your phone. Please hit one so we can bring you in, Brother Moses. If you hear, hear my voice, please hit one. Until then, what we're going to do, panelists, right now, let's move on. Let's move on to the next discussion, and discussions on another interesting article as it relates to the theme today, the challenge of change. That was an article that is titled, Against the Odds, Cuba Could Become a Coronavirus Vaccine Powerhouse. Now, when you read this article, if Cuba became a coronavirus powerhouse, Sister Shirley, how would that benefit the rest of the world? From your perspective, Sister Shirley, tell us, how would that benefit the rest of the world if Cuba became a powerhouse? Would this be something good for the world, of Cuba becoming a powerhouse, or not? Sister Shirley. This would be this would be something absolutely absolutely wonderful for the world. Cuba Cuba is the most generous uh, country in the world. If they become a powerhouse in the maker of COVID vaccines, they will share that with the world. And that means that people, more people will get vaccinated on a quicker basis. Also, just recently, uh, Cuba uh, has given the production of uh, some of the Abdallah uh, vaccine that they are making uh, to Venezuela so that Venezuela can produce their own vaccine. So um, I see everything good to come from Cuba being as successful as possible with uh, it's the efficacy of its vaccines and being able to share them worldwide. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. And Brother Anthony, one of the things I know about this article that gave me some sense of assurance that um, it makes sense in terms of how they're attacking the problem is that Cuba recognizing that research, they go into stages of development and research, which, you know, from my understanding that, you know, you just can't create things overnight like they do in the U.S. What do you make of the process that the Cubans have been using to ensure the safety of their people and create a, 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 a vaccine or vaccines that will be capable of doing what it says it does in terms of addressing this particular so-called virus? Brother Anthony, speak to that issue. Yeah. yeah. I think I think this reflects the fact that uh, that in Cuba human life is primary above all else. And that's uh and that's typical of any scientific socialist society uh which uh you know which, which Cuba is. And uh because of that uh they that the, the they're very serious. They're very concerned about the safety of the people that that the that that, that the vaccine is tested on, 
as well as uh, you know his overall impact on the on the general population, and correctly so. And uh, this were, this is a consequence of the fact that uh, that uh, you know uh, under under uh, socialism, human life is primary, not money. Human life. And uh, and so I think and so I think that uh, you know that that's an important difference between what's happening in uh, in Cuba and what's happening in, uh, in in certain capitalist and neo-colonialist countries that uh, uh, you, you know where, uh, where, where 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 you know profits. Uh, you know, come ahead of uh, of everything else, and uh, you know you have uh, you know the you know what's uh, you know going on in Europe uh, and the and the U.S. Uh, you know as examples. Hey, brother Hackey, when we look at this article. By the way, which was published on the 29th of March from the Washington Post, against the odds, Cuba could become a coronavirus vaccine powerhouse. Brother Hackey, one thing that stood out in this article is they talk about the possibility of not only that Cuba would create maybe five variations of the vaccine to deal with the virus, but also have it available to countries like Venezuela, Iran, those countries that have been um, put on a, 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 a embargo blockade list by the U.S., given the fact that we said that if all countries are not safe from the virus, then no country would be safe. What is it about Cuba and its practices of willing to understand the importance to help other countries who may not have the capacity to produce a vaccine? to deal with the virus, willing to want to share with their help. Versus the U.S., they have a policy of, 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 of making sure that these countries will not be able to protect their people from the virus. What do you say to that kind of demeanor, that kind of expression of um, hate towards humanity, Brother Hackey? <laughs> well, first, I think you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely when you talk about the achievements of five vaccines being created in Cuba, it's a astounding achievement. These achievements are only possible because Cuba has a great uh, uh, learning ed- educational system. Uh, so when you think about the kind of uh, impact embargoes have on the economy, but yet its ability to educate its people is outstanding. So clearly, you know, uh, these researchers are beneficiaries of an educational system which really cares about human beings, not only in terms of the ability in terms of actually perform labor, but actually be able to think. So Cuba is miles ahead of the United States when it comes to education. And one of the things also when we talk about the achievements of the vaccine, when you talk about the fact that they're talking about creating vaccines to withstand room temperatures uh, for weeks at a time, or even long-term storage of vaccines approaching 47 degrees, you're speaking, you know, a really innovative kind of project in terms of the vaccine. In fact, one of the big problems in terms of the United States was in terms of creating these vaccines uh, in terms of being able to store them, you know, for a long period of time. So apparently Cuba has overcome that problem. So you're right, Brother Africa, when you talk about in terms of the, the, the relationship between, you know, uh, Iran, uh, China, in terms of their ability to work with Cuba in terms of creating viruses, 
And clearly, we understand that Cuba has a great deal of respect from the world community. And in fact, that she has some similar values. And so this notion in terms of people have a right in terms of these vaccines as, as a right uh, is expressed in terms of the relationship between China, Iran, and, and Cuba. Uh, in fact, one of the things also is that when you talk about Cuba in terms of, you know, um, its humanity, when they talk about, you know, 100 million, by the end of the year, 100 million doses a year, uh, 100 million doses in a year, that's a lot of vaccines. And they're talking about giving it to, to poor countries around the world and to give it to them at, at a price in which they can afford it, not to Proskauge, not to like the Western nations in terms of giving the vaccine and charging them a tremendous amount of money to the point where they destabilize economies. Uh, so clearly Cuba is very, very humane. But one other thing I'm going to say, and I conclude with this, Brother Africa, it's important to point out that, and one of the things that um, I think it was uh, Brother brother uh, Maurice talked about, uh, one of the things, oh, or Brother Anthony, one of the things is that, uh, you know, um, the paper talks about the fact that the researchers in Cuba make about $250 a month. Now, clearly, if money was a focus, then certainly these researchers wouldn't be putting their heart, putting their all in terms of creating this vaccine. So obviously, they understand the importance in terms of humanity. And so therefore, in creating these vaccines, Cuba understands that, you know, that, you know, in order to, in order for humanity to excel, then this, this virus has to be, has to be dealt with on a global level. It's not, it's not, it's not pretending that, you know, somehow that, you know, if you just espouse a national policy and cure your people, then everything is okay. It says that the world must be indoctrinated against this virus. So it speaks values in terms of Cuba's humanity. So one of the things, Brother Africa, I would think that, you know, uh, when we talk about this, 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 this contrast between the United States and America, they clearly, when you talk about this, this, this whole focus on material gain at the expense of all others, uh, sort of puts to shame this notion that the fact that there are all countries behave that way. Cuba is a prime example of a country not behaving that way in which they understand the validity and the value of human life. Thank you, Brother Haki, and to Sister Eleanor and Brother Maurice. Sister Eleanor first and Brother Maurice. Um, one of the things this article raised that maybe citizens in the United States can do is we need to exert all the press we can to put an end to this blockade against Cuba, against all countries, really, because blockade is another form of economic warfare. It's a low-intensive warfare against a country. One of the things we need to do is, you know, find ways to make sure we can put, bring about an end of this blockade in the U.S. because what it's doing against Cuba is making it very difficult to get the necessary supplies and equipment to do all these good things, you know, for humanity. In terms of raising that issue, Sister Eleanor, what would you say to American people on the issue of what they can do or why they should be in solidarity with Cuba and find ways of how to force these so-called politicians to change this foreign policy towards Cuba and let's put an end to this blockade? What would you say to the American people in terms of why we should do all we can to bring quickly an end to this illegal and war and racist blockade against Cuba and all countries of goodwill? I think, um, I think um, thank you, Brother thank Africa, you, brother. first of all. Um, as U.S. citizens, residents, we should uh, be writing to our congresspersons and uh, urging them to lift this embargo. The embargo harms us as well as it harms Cuban people. 
whenever there is a an embargo, there are deaths. There are literally physical casualties when someone cannot receive their diabetic medication, when someone cannot receive their high blood pressure medication, those things, people die and suffer. We saw that in Iraq in the 1990s. We bombed the country. We destroyed their infrastructure. And then we put an embargo in place. Look at the thousands of people that died. And as I as I, uh, as the earlier speaker said, Cuba is generous and kind. Only nation on earth that says to African-American students, if you wish to go to medical school, come to Cuba. We will provide you with a medical education. And to this day, to the best of my knowledge, they still are offering African-Americans an opportunity to become medical doctors in Cuba. So I think, um, similar to what happened in the district, uh, you know, the Martin Luther King Library in the District of Columbia is the only building in the United States named for Dr. King during life. And it was because the residents of the District of Columbia wrote Congress and did a a diligent job of letter writing. I think that we can do that. Uh, to Congress right now and urge them to lift the embargo so that we can work with the Cuban government to end this world pandemic and close Guantanamo Bay. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Maurice, what can we do to desert pressure inside you as to tell not only lift the blockade, and I would like to make a distinction between embargo and blockade. When you say embargo, you're talking about country-to-country, one-on-one relationship. But this is a blockade where the U.S. has used its influence and power of forcing other countries not to trade with Cuba. So not only is against, you know, U.S., they have many countries, Zimbabwe, um, you name it, uh, Venezuela, where they have use their power to blockade these countries for getting materials in order for the people to exist. So when we speak to the people of the United States, we got to understand our relationship to these problems. It's not a Cuban problem. It's our problems as, as well. Brother Maurice, will you talk a little bit to that issue about what can we do to help our brothers and sisters put an end to this blockade against Cuba and all just free love countries? Brother Maurice. Yes, Brother Africa, uh, you you hit it right on the head. Um, Cuba is not a, the issue that the blockade in Cuba is not a Cuba problem. It's our problem. And and we need to connect Cuba to any part of the struggle, whether, I'm not talking about the commercial side of Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about the everyday people in the street who's fighting and combating uh, police violence and police brutality. That need to be connected to, to the, to the struggle uh, to lift the embargo and the blockade off of Cuba. Cuba provided black doctors, um, African doctors. They provided medical. Uh, every time they go to a, a country, they provide uh, medical training. They, they provide medical supplies, medical support. They don't leave. Uh, they don't create or feed into the ongoing violence. Africom. They don't. Uh, you know. They don't go. They don't. They don't go into a nation. 
and destroy more and take it further to what it, what it you know what it is develop war uh or what have you so you know they 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 go in Brazil and provide medical support healthcare i mean you know training technical training and stuff like that we old key we need to con- uh, connect it to our struggle we need to be writing the congressman the city council and we need to um be organizing protesting in, in Washington DC and connected to any whatever the struggle we're fighting against, it need to be connected. Balance. If you want, if, you, if your struggles are val- against balance, Cuba need to be connected. If your struggles is is for is for fighting for the homeless, Cuba need to be be connected to that. Um, Cuba provide housing. They understand the important the human. They understand the human rights to housing as being a human right and a human need. So this is this is where this is where we need to. Um, you know, this is how we can support Cuba. We need a fight, and so, you know, and support and connect it to all the part of our struggle, and put pressure on the on the con on your congressman, on your city council, on your president, uh, on all sorts of you know of, of of this government to lift their blockade and get it and get it lift. You know, I would say that. Uh, and, I, and and to um, Bobby Scott defense, if I'm not uh, mis- if I'm not um, incorrect. I believe he voted against uh, the blockade. I, I believe he 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 uh, vote, was basically in support of Cuba, if I'm not mistaken. So we do have congressmen out there who are trying to, you know, put put a uh, give a hand out, if you will, in this sense, to Cuba from their uh, United States uh, Congress position. So please put pressure on the government. On the government. Connected to all parts of the struggle, and we got it. We got it. The blockade got to be left. Cuba is. When you understand the politics of a of a government, you see what it produced. Cuba produced nothing but you know. And I'm not I'm not romanticizing. You can look at the track record, right? You can look at the track record. When Congo was in trouble, Cuba was there to help. When people were sick in South Africa from the COVID-19, trying to catch up. Cuba was there to help. Cuba got uh, uh, doctors who was trained in Cuba right now in North, North Carolina. From what I from what I do know, I'm in New York. So and it's also you have other politicians in in Atlanta or Detroit, if I'm not mistaken, who are trying to learn from Cuba at this moment. So I say all that to say that those are the things that we can do to continue the support, support. Uh, to lift uh, that blockade, lift blockade off of Cuba. Off of Cuba. Okay, and Brother Moses, if you're there, we'd like to hear from you. What do you think, Brother Moses? What can we do to show our solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Cuba? Brother Moses. Are you with us, Brother Moses? Okay, we still have some problem with Brother Moses on his board. What we're going to do right now, we're going to move on to our next article. And we're going to talk about this issue as we talk about the theme tonight, part two, the challenge of change. And I thought this would be an interesting article. We're looking at the history of these two countries, Vietnam and the U.S. It's an article that is titled from the Gray Zone on April 10th, 2021. It's titled, it's from org. It's titled Pentagon. Campaign to recruit Vietnam against China, expose delusions or war strategy. Brother Haki, you can actually take the lead on this one. 
out of out from your understanding the history between the U.S. and Vietnam, why would the U.S. think that the Vietnam would allow them to put military troops, U.S. military troops, in that country for the sole basis of being able to strike and fight against China? What kind of same policy is that when you're talking about a country who have respect for their own integrity, their independence, and not to want to be used as a pun, understanding they had a history earlier for the U.S. that was not a good history. Brother Hackey, your response. Brother Africa, I don't know why they were thinking that somehow that the uh, <laughs> the Vietnamese would capitulate in terms of American uh, interest. Uh, clearly, as you alluded to, you know, you're right. They went through a long walk with the U.S. Why the hell did you turn around and uh, give comfort uh, to to someone who essentially tried to destroy your country? So clearly, but, you know, one of the things, Brother Africa, we got to be very, very clear on, you know, when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, there's a certain amount of opportunism that exists in U.S. foreign policy. For example, this guy, Derek Grossman, uh, who stretches on Viet- so-called stretches on Vietnam, who works with the Rand Corporation. Of course, the Rand Corporation is the Defense Department research wing. He, uh, his position was that um, even though Vietnam was adamantly opposed to U.S. Uh, physically being on Vietnam's soil, specifically for the purpose of setting up missiles, he was convinced that somehow you could, you, you could somehow, somehow they could still convince the Vietnamese people to change their minds. Now, the Vietnamese specifically had a policy which says that three, consisted of three things. One, no military alliances. Second, no aligning with one country against another. And thirdly, no foreign military bases in Vietnam. So why, why would they think that somehow the uh, Vietnamese was, 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 was informing them of this and uh, somehow, being, somehow being disingenuous? It seems to me that, you know, out of numerous meetings that they had with the Vietnamese, when they decided on 15 different occasions to boycott those meetings with the U.S., it seems to me they were sending a signal to the U.S. that we're not going to play that game. But given the arrogance of, of the U.S. U.S. foreign policy, and, and given the kind of opportunism that exists among you know these uh, think tanks, uh, they convinced themselves, deluded themselves actually into believing in the fact that things could change, but things didn't change. Vietnam stuck to its guns. You know the U.S. eventually got the message, and they no longer they, they, they no longer uh, approaching Vietnam for sole purpose of setting up bases with military uh, missile weaponry. You know, so they for pro, sole purpose of attacking China's ships, you know, in, in Ch- South China Sea. Thank you, Brother Haki. Sister Shirley, you know, there's been a long history, long struggle between Vietnam and U.S. As Brother Kwame stated in his, in his, in his earlier um, presentation, that not only does capitalism last summertime, they last all the time. And given that fact, you know, that um, would you trust any... U.S. troops were in your border to come and do what they say solely for their interests. What you make of this, this this policy of trying to create and manufacture this concept of an enemy as China being an enemy to humanity and U.S. is being a friend to humanity by having the capabilities to, work, to be able to strike them if they are given a land base inside of Vietnam, what do you make of this strategy? And how does this really benefit American people? Shouldn't the people know exactly what the real game is all about 
so they can stop being used as pawns for the interests of a few ruling class folks in this country to make money for the rich and the wealthy, Sister Shirley. Yeah, I, yeah, I believe, I, I this, believe this, 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 this whole uh, uh, drama that's about to unfold about the U.S. painting China uh, as uh, the evil one that uh, must be conquered or else, I believe this is one of the more destructive things that our country is going to embark on. And um, so when I saw the article about the U.S. having approached Vietnam about this, it kind of reminded me in general of the way I believe the U.S does things gen- generally when they're approaching countries when they should have better sense than do so. And what it is, it's out of arrogance. I think the arrogance, um, as uh, Haki said, was the number of times they kept going back and back and back to Vietnamese authorities trying to get them to concede. And, of course, anyone with any brains would realize it was a useless effort to begin with. But this is not the only route that uh, the United States is taking to to go after uh, China. There are many routes. But I do believe that the conflict and the mess in the in the South China Sea uh, is going to be an issue that is going to get more and more dangerous as as time goes on because of the number of different countries that are involved in uh, with claims and interest in the South China Sea how much trade goes through those routes, going through the Malacca Straits, and as a pathway to India, a huge uh, uh, country. And um, I think that there could be many dangers um, over there. So I am I'm sorry to see this happen. Um, Brother Lee, Brother Lee, could I just back up for one moment on our previous discussion about the uh, blockade of Cuba? The mic is yours, Shirley. And the mic is all yours. Yeah. Yes, you can. All right. Okay. I think the writing to members of Congress that that's no longer going to be a viable path or a useful path to try to get rid of these blockades. And there are many of many blockades now. Of course, there's a horrible one against uh, Iran. There's Venezuela. Uh, there's Nicaragua. There's Cuba. And um, yeah, and some Bobby we Wayne, know, got a host of them. Go ahead, Sister Shirley. Yes, yes. yes, yes. And, so and so we can no longer 
uh, rely on members of Congress because the administration is 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 not going to do anything in support of relieving the situation in Cuba. And all of it, I believe, is related to a greater strategy that attacks, that's attacking the pink tide that involves Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and legislation every week is being penned by Bob Menendez, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, against Venezuela, some, and recently something about um, Nicaragua as well. I think that the only way to demonstrate our displeasure, we are going to have to, have to hit the streets this summer, and I think we're going to have to figure out some way to begin to hold educational uh, seminars of some kind with members of, of the public. Because I think the Congress and certainly the Biden administration are the worst enemies we could have right now. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. And Brother Anthony, when I read this article, I said, uh-oh, here goes another, uh, another narrative of creating an enemy. They create situations in which not only are they trying to make China like they are an enemy and doing something they're not doing, but also, Brother Anthony, based upon this pattern in history, I can just about project that now Vietnam could become a target by the U.S. government through the CIA and the intelligence to undermine or overthrow that government and put a puppet machine in that would do what they want. Your response to that narrative, Brother Anthony? It's a real possibility. And and Vietnam uh, had to fight uh, to throw off, uh, you know, the oppression of uh, of the U.S. military for nearly two decades. So they definitely do not want, uh, you know, the area used as a, 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 the land used as a base, as a military uh, base by anybody, especially the, the U.S. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and um, you're, 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 you're correct. There's a possibility that uh, in response, the U.S. might try, might, might attend, attempt to uh, undermine uh, Vietnam's uh, uh, sovereignty by, uh, you know, doing, uh, uh, you know, some sort of uh, operation against uh, uh, the government of Vietnam and trying to install a puppet in there. But... Uh, let's see, but um, uh, there are still uh, the the war uh, uh, Vietnam's war against the U.S. was so devastating to the people of Vietnam that there's still people that have memories of it, 
And uh, so, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's another case where the U.S. is trying to dominate uh, the world by, uh, you know, uh, by, 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 uh, you know, putting its military footprint in other countries. And, uh, and, uh, and it cause, and it's, it's devastating, devastating for, uh, for, for the U.S. For in the, the long, US run long run because it gets them in wars that they can't easily get out of. And uh, uh, let's see, a case in point is the situation in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, and the thing, and, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the military option against what seems to be, uh, uh, you know, in their estimation, uh, militarily weaker countries isn't, uh, it, it, it isn't going to work in the, U, uh, uh, in the U.S. interest in the long run. Especially for the masses of working people inside the U.S. Thank you, Brother Anthony, and to Brother Maurice and Eleanor. Brother Maurice, first, y'all respond to this article, because again, here we go. Not we in terms of identifying with the U.S. government, but we in terms of the people who are going to be duke, resources are going to be mismanaged, People are going to be giving their lives for the interest of a few elite capitalists to make money and to try to undermine the, the, the independence of other nations. Y'all response to this article, Brother Maurice. What lessons should we take from this, Brother Maurice? Uh, yes, um, yes, we should um, see. I mean, we should see, I mean, we should see this should again see as this another again. case study of United States of America capitalism uh, working once again to to undermine Vietnam. Um, if, if we if we look at the, the 1950s and the 1960s, um, American involvement with Vietnam, and, and we uh, learn about Ho, uh, Ho Chi Minh, we should we should see this. We should have seen this coming. You know, we should we should not be surprised that America. This is nothing new. They've been trying. They they never stopped their occupation and into going into Vietnam, into going in the Philippines, the whole Asian uh, region, the Eastern region. Um, they you know they trying to undermine China. It's it's all connected at the end of the day. But uh, as one of the panelists said, it is going to lead to something uh, of 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 a, of a greater war. Um, you know, United. I mean, you know, United States of America. They are, they are very, they are very. Uh, I, I I hate to say this, but they are very strategic. Obviously, you know, on how to dominate other other countries and countries who they feel is a threat. They they know how to, they 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 try they try their best to undermine countries, pick one country, pick one country uh, against the other. They make it look like they're going against this country. And in and, and all reality, they'll come back, come back in another country. You know, they 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 utilize uh, stuff like that. I forgot the name of it. It's a, it's a name that they use. They call this type of strategy that they uh, utilize. But this this is this is the on like Malcolm said. This is the ongoing game going on all the time with these people and uh, the people of Vietnam. Like 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 the sister said, or I think uh, I think the sister said it. 
that they 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 don't they not they don't forget. It's still people. I think Brother Anthony said it. It's still people today in, in Vietnam who remember the '60s and the in the '70s and the '50s. When you know when this was going on back then, um, nothing changed. And those and those people back then who was raising hell and fighting against the United States of America, they still here today. You still got you still got the spirits of um, Ho Chi Minh and uh, Sister Hanoi over there. Uh, in, in Vietnam, so uh, you know the, the people, man. Is uh, and Fred Hampton said, is it, it, wherever you find people, you got power. And, you know they can try to undermine who you know Vietnam or whatever. At the end of the day, the people gonna have the last say. And I conclude with that. Sister Illinois, your take. Have you been there in this role before? Have we need? Have we? Do we have a need? You say no more changes. We're not gonna bring no changes on this one because there will not be no fundamental change. This has been this as normal. Sister Eleanor, your response to this article: the Pentagon campaign to recruit Vietnam against China exposes delusions or war strategy. Your take, Sister Eleanor. I guess we may have lost Sister Eleanor. We're going to do right now, panelists. We're going to take a a quick break, cultural break, and when we come back, we ask each of our panelists their final thoughts for tonight as we speak to part two, the challenge of changes. This is Africa on the move. We'll be right back.
That's right. Welcome back to Africa on the Move, and don't become a Buffalo soldier. Stop fighting other people's walls. We welcome you back to part two, the challenge of change. Right now, we'd like to remind those who are interested in showing our support for Cuba is the Africa on the Move. We'll be teaming up with the African Awareness Association and other African organizations where we'll be planning a Freedom Ride tour to Cuba during the last part of December and New Year 2022. If you're interested in joining us, please email us at AfricaOnTheMood2 at gmail, and we will send you information on how you can come and join us. This is going to be a very exciting trip, an important trip, and we want you to get first-hand experiences a life in Cuba and show your respect and support to all those things that Cuba has done, not only for Africa and African people, but also for humanity in general. So come and join us at the end of this year, the last part of December, and bring in the New Year. What a way to bring in the New Year is to celebrate in Cuba with our brothers and sisters. On that note, in closing out tonight, we would like to ask each one of our participants to share with us their final thoughts for today's program. And we go first to see if we have Brother Moses on the line. Brother Moses, we're going to try to see if we got you on the line. If you do, Brother Moses, uh, we're going to bring you in, Brother Moses. Can you please hit one? If you're on the board, Brother Moses, we'd like to have your final thoughts. If you're on the board, hit one. If not, we're going to start off right now with Sister Shirley Pate. Sister Shirley Pate, your final thoughts for tonight. Sister Shirley. Thank you, Brother Lee. Um, I very much uh, enjoyed this evening's discussion and appreciated the comments of everyone. It's been uh, wide-ranging, involving a lot of uh, issues. Uh, What pervades all of it is the United States' ruthless, relentless, imperialism that continues to stab the heart of this country, the United States, and many places throughout the world. That is a, that is an assessment that I can't dress up in any way and won't won't even try to. But I do I have hope. I have hope because of wonderful countries like Cuba, which in spite of all the hell it's been through, continues 
to survive uh, proudly and continues to provide all of the basic needs that its people need. I also am, am positive about Venezuela in spite of the what was uh, reported uh, two years ago as over 40,000 people had been killed in Venezuela as a result of U.S. sanctions. Venezuela is still uh, moving and they are doing their very best to provide most of the basic needs that their people have. I got off of a webinar that I was on this afternoon that talked about the latest going on in Nicaragua, and they are doing very well in spite of right-wing news um, that they are doing very well regarding the COVID pandemic, and they have been making many strides uh, in their country as well. And I will close with this. I'll be sending you an email, Brother Lee, tomorrow to let you know I want to be on that delegation trip that you all are planning for the end of this year. So thank you. That is beautiful, Sister Shirley, and we'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's program. And we will now go to Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, we'd like to have your final thoughts for tonight. The mic is yours. Thank you, Brother Africa, as always, for having this platform. Brother Anthony, Brother Haki, Brother Moses. Um, I'd like to thank the other guests, uh, the sisters on here, for giving great commentary tonight. Thank you, as always, for having Africa on, on the move. And I would say to our le- listeners, please continue to support. Please continue to uh, political educate yourself. That's the main thing. That's the first step before, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, but you have to get organized, but you got to ha- get organized around political education. You have to understand the current events, what's going on around the world. You have to understand the politics of Cuba. You have to understand what you know what's going on in Africa. You have to understand what's going on in Venezuela, Brazil, all over the world, China, Vietnam, all the places we talk about tonight. You have to understand, as as Kwame Ray put it, one or the other, hot or cold. You have to understand capitalism or and socialism. You have to understand what capital everywhere capital capitalists go, they they defecate in the water. United Nations, they they they. Add fuel, add gasoline to to ongoing killing and violence. Africom, NATO, but as we see, as we demonstrated tonight, you see from a socialist system when they when they go around the country, they leave behind technical assistance with with uh, medical with healthcare with with doctors with medical training. So we have to make that observation as a, as a people as a masses so we can get to where we got to get to those human uh, rights that we need housing. Healthcare, real education, true education, um, food, and, and and just righteous living, not this ongoing oppression and the hell that we we're catching right now. And I conclude with that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Maurice, for your contribution as well to today's program. And we're gonna try one more time. I believe this may be Brother Moses, but if not, 
Call the 0796 if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us tonight. Brother 0796, any final thoughts you'd like to share? The mic is yours, 0796. Okay, I guess not. So we'll go to Sister, go to our Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, give us your final thoughts for the night. Well, uh, thank, thank you all so much for such a wonderful um, opportunity to learn and share. Um, just remember, I would say to everyone to remember that health care, education, and housing is a human right for the residents of the District of Columbia. Remember that we need to fight to reinstate the uh, original D.C. rent control laws to bring back TOPA. We also need to be a model for the nation by eliminating housing discrimination. The greatest form of uh, discrimination in our country right now is housing. Persons who live in public housing have no rights to uh, they don't have TOPA rights. They don't have technically a right to own the place they live or to make a decision about the future of their home. So let's change that. Let's make sure that public housing residents are not forced to move for developers to develop these high-rent condos, but instead make housing a human right, health care a human right, education, a human right. And uh, as I suggested, I think we should write, as other people have suggested, we should demonstrate, we should write our city council, our mayors, and our Congress this embargo, this horrible embargo against Cuba. And for us to address the issue of the pandemic by having Moderna make its proprietary information public so that any pharmaceutical lab on planet Earth can produce the vaccine to save lives. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, for your contribution to today's program as well. And we now go to Brother Haki. We have his final thoughts for tonight. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Yeah, I think yeah. that, uh, you know, we, we, we have to confront certain realities in society. When I talk about the fact that the economy is deconstructing, I'm not saying that to simply terrorize folks. I'm telling you that because of the implications. When we think about a system that fundamentally uh, gives money, increasing amounts of money to a very small segment of the society, we got to begin to understand that by virtue, by virtue of doing that, then our own existence is very precarious. And when we talk about the flow of history, we talk about the bad things that have happened during history when governments decide that certain, that certain people are simply not uh, deserving of, of longevity or deserving of, of, of living long lives, then we've got to understand that in, in, in that context that uh, we're greatly in trouble. I, I'm not trying to scare people. I just want people to seriously think about this stuff. So when I tell people, listen, please, by all means, please, when we say to you, go back and look at, uh, you know, for instance, marginal tax rate, we want you to understand precisely what that is. When you talk about the function of the Consumer Price Index, we want you to know exactly what that is and how it operates. 
because it's all it's all about you. And it's important we understand that fundamental fact. We got people in positions of power who are sociopathic. They don't they're incapable of giving a damn about human beings. For them it's all about money, pure and simple. And it's not a question of color. Because you got you got African psychopaths or sociopaths, you got white sociopaths, you got Asian sociopaths, you got Latino sociopaths. So it's not a question in terms of color, it's a question of if it, if it comes down to to individuals in terms of how they think. But as a class, clearly, you know, uh, the capitalist class have certainly disproportionately more sociopaths in it. Uh, so clearly, you know, the situation that we're confronted with is a very dangerous one. And I certainly hope that people take the time to educate yourself. If, you, if you're not clear on something, then ask the question. Engage in the struggle. It's okay to be wrong. I mean, nobody's always right. But have that discussion because it's so critical. That clarity is so critical. But I close with that, Brother African, and always I encourage people you know, to unravel the matrix because uh, that is key. Uh, that is but having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And good night to you, Brother Haki. You have a good one. And now we bring Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes, sir, yes certainly. Sir. Uh, my final thought for tonight, in light of uh, what was presented tonight, it becomes more critical than than it ever has been in our history for uh for us to organize as a people in order to achieve pan Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Uh the uh you know the uh you know our survival as a people depends upon it. And uh let's see and uh you can learn more about uh Pan Africanism as well as the All African People's Revolutionary Party G C by visiting our website at www a dash a p r p dash g c dot org and uh join uh be, join an organization that is working for people's liberation if you uh if you don't like any of the organizations that do exist uh your uh please create your own and also, and we also must we continue must to continue politically, politically educate, educate each other. Each other. Thanks for brother having Anthony, us, Brother Africa. Brother Anthony, if you can quickly just let the people know if um, I am correct, the African Liberation Day, Palestine and Nakbak Day will be this year, May the 22nd, uh, 2021. It will be a virtual webinar. And this year's theme will be One Unified Socialist Africa, One Palestine. How can they tune in to get more information and have them to put that data aside? Can you just briefly speak to that? Uh, certainly. You can find out more information about that uh, by uh, visiting our, uh, our, our website, www dot a dash a p r p dash g c dot org and also and check it out periodically because uh we're we're gonna be updating the information uh on an on an ongoing basis 
and uh you can either uh you know uh check uh you know check it out on that day or 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 the or we we will have it available in uh in, in virtual format uh you know uh even after the, the event is over but je- but definitely check out our our website on a regular basis and uh you know and uh you know you can uh you know call or email us if you if you want further information thank you brother Anthony. thank all our participants thank our supporters and our listening audience for allowing us to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation that's to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. In terms of a couple of announcements, again, we would like to remind those who are listening to this program uh, to put on your uh, calendar that at the end of this year, the last week of December, and coming in the new year, 2022, we will be taking a freedom ride tour to Cuba in conjunction with several other African organizations that will come or will will go to Cuba to show our respect, our love, and our support of the Cuban people and the beautiful things that they have done and continue to do for Africa, African people, and humanity. So if you want to join us, please start planning now. You can email us at africaonthemove2@gmail. Dot com or African Awareness Association too at gmail dot com, and we share more information. So please, please speak to your friends, your network, tell them stock and repair, come and join us. Also, we just would like to remind you, encourage you to, if you want to have a copy of this program, please email us at Africa on the Move to at gmail. We send you a copy of this program or so other programs that you would like to have. Just inform us, let us know. We are in the process of organizing a support uh, friendship committee and supporting the radio station. We do need your support, and we will welcome that. And last but not least, can you please spread the word that Africa on the Move is a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m., basically. We speak to to power, share with your network. We want to be our audience. We want to use this as a tool where we can have a critical exchange of information, discussion, and understanding of what is going on in our world and our communities. Because we know that without information, we cannot think. And we know more critically without organization, we cannot think clearly. So we want to encourage you to join a organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people or to help make humanity better. If you find one that if you can't find one that suits your needs, then you have the responsibility to create one. If you love your people, if you love humanity, the best way to exemplify that is to be organized. Join an organization. Let's get organized. Until next week we subscribe to go forward, Apple, back with Apple, and we leave you with some music or inspiration. This has been Africa on the Move. She is my 
philosophe est dans l'unité, dans l'amour, la volonté, le sacrifice. L'amour, la volonté et le sacrifice pour le changement du Congo. Congo Love pour un Congo nouveau. Madame Patricia Lokwa, servant. Banaya Congo Tolingana pour Sangana. Africa. Thank you. 